Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 88 of Through the Years, the podcast that reviews Ring of Honor show by show from the beginning. I'm Trevor Dame, joined as always by the co-host, Matt Feuerstein. Matt, it's been three crazy weeks in the world of wrestling and in our world in a weird way. Uh, a couple of things to talk about. I was debating if I should talk about one of them, but the first thing I think we should talk about is anyone that's followed us on Twitter would know, like we've talked about, and we'll give the Twitter out at the end of the show, like we always do. But like, uh, um, we, we've both talked about this in the last week or so, but it's crazy how many weird callbacks to whatever we're covering at like that particular moment on through the years are now happening in wrestling. And this one is the craziest. I think it blew both of our minds where we are right now in the through the years timeline, you know, where we're going show by show. So we're not picking and choosing. We're just going in order. And we started this over five years ago. Now we just happened to have fallen on the timeline where right now we are covering a period where Samoa Joe was on a quest to win his third different Ring of Honor title, the Triple Crown, so to speak, and he was and starts a feud with uh, his protege Jay Lethal. It is now 17 years later. Samoa Joe just won his third unique Ring of Honor title. It was not the tag title that he was searching for in 2005, but it's the TV title, and he is starting a feud with Jay Lethal, and that is fucking bizarre. I, I can't get over how weird that is. Well, it's not just that he's starting a feud with Jay Lethal. It's that it's like a main event level feud on a major primetime TV wrestling company that is drawing a lot of attention. And it just came out of completely nowhere. Like, like there was nothing in the world six weeks ago that would suggest that this could possibly be a thing that was on television, right? And now yeah. it was the main event of the most recent Dynamite that we just saw. The final angle of the show was a, was an angle involving Samoa Joe and his new television arch nemesis, Jay Lethal, on AEW Dynamite. And that's freaking weird. Yeah, and it's one of those things where, you know, obviously Samoa Joe and AEW isn't a surprise. Like the day he got released, people I'm sure were speculating about that. But if someone had told you that day, oh yeah, uh, Samoa Joe's first feud in uh, AEW will be against Jay Lethal and he'll be winning on his first AEW match a Ring of Honor title. Because, oh, by the way, AEW owns Ring of Honor now. You'd go, what? what? <laughs> like It I'm- is amazing at this point AEW keeps finding ways to feel like you playing like total extreme warfare or something it is it is wild it is and like a lot of it's really cool some of it maybe not always but like it's it's certainly bizarre like it's just that and then yeah and uh, i mean the funny part is like we were just talking about this there is another match on this show that we're reviewing that was also featured on aew dynamite in the past six months like an, yeah, an exact and, and- match it's just so weird. And, but, you know, I mean, obviously Tony Khan was a big Ring of Honor fan. So I'm sure, like, he is living in his Ring of Honor nostalgia as much as anybody. Cause, you know, you hear, like, Dave Meltzer and stuff, like, wonder, like, why even buy the Ring? I mean, no, he's not against them buying the tape library, but, like, you're promoting Ring of Honor shows when just expanding AEW to another brand and using the AEW name would draw more and blah, blah, blah. But I think sometimes people, when they just think about them, just forget that, like, I think Tony, you know, Tony Khan's just a big wrestling nerd, and I think sometimes he's going to do things because he's a fucking wrestling nerd, you know, because the idea of owning Ring of Honor and keeping it going or having Samoa Joe debut in Ring of Honor again after all these years, like, it, it tickles the nerd boner. 
I wish I could take that back. <laughs> I mean, I can edit it out if you want. No, it's okay. <laughs> Leave it in. I, I live with my mistakes. Yeah, I mean, Steve Carino is currently employed by WWE, right? So, but I was going to say, if, if Tony if Tony Khan really wanted to troll us, he could somehow book something involving Steve Carino and Homicide in the next five months. And I think that that would just put us over the top. He could book Colby Carino and Homicide. Sure, I mean, he could do that. I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, listen, I'm not. I don't know. I, I don't read anything into my tone. I'm not, I have no feelings negatively about that. Yeah, but it would not be the same. It would not be quite the same thing. No, but you could do the old false advertising, like um, when uh, WWF in the 1980s was expanding into everyone's territory, and they went into Memphis. I always loved this story where uh, they wanted to get Jerry Lawler at that time, but couldn't, and so. Instead, they promoted like Hulk Hogan versus the King, and that's all they promoted. It was Hulk Hogan versus the King Harley Race. Like you could do next next week on Dynamite, Carino versus Homicide. You could technically be telling the truth. But you know what's it's it's funny that we're entered into a world where like promoting that match on a, a national television would get a lot of buzz because you know like there was once upon a time where that was just an indie feud, and now like if you said Carino versus Homicide on Dynamite next week, like Twitter would go crazy. But yeah. On the other hand, people know that Steve Carino is signed to WWE, so maybe not. Um, so they'd probably figure it out. You know what's funny about all this like AEW ROH nostalgia? Remember when um, Brian Danielson first joined AEW and everyone was like, oh, I wish he could have gotten the final countdown as his music? Well, now after the whole CM Punk music at Revolution Kerfuffle – I realize it might be for the best because some, for some reason, like people would get mad if he came out to the final <laughs> countdown. Like, what is this music? Why would anyone yeah. care? Like, that's it's just really man. The world is a weird place, huh? Well, well, revisiting this now, even like the Ring of Honor people are coming out where Danielson started using Final Countdown. You can hear on the first couple like shows he used it, like a couple people remembering like this song sucks or stuff like that. Like, they, like even I think some fans the first time Danielson ever used it were like. They just, I think they didn't kind of get how it's, it's, yeah, it can be, it's kind of a corny ass song, but it's kind of corny in an awesome way. Well, I mentioned this, well, I mentioned this on the, on the show that we did where we covered that match, uh, Glory by Honor. There were definitely people in the crowd, because I was there, that understood the irony of it immediately and were psyched about it. Like they were like, oh, yes, the freaking final countdown. This is awesome. Like, you know, like just like this is a hilarious song. Because there's no one who was like around then who watched Arrested Development that didn't understand that that show, that song was funny. You know what I mean? And I do think, like, I think there was some crossover between Arrested Development fans and ROH fans. I mean, me, for one. <laughs> um, no, you're absolutely right. So uh, I was just thinking about uh, this show will probably be, like, the, the the show review part of this episode will probably be a little bit shorter. Or who knows? Because usually when there's one long match on a show, I find, you know, our episodes are a little bit shorter because we're just there's talking fewer, about there's, fewer there's fewer matches, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, it's not like we, we occasionally it's been like this, but it's usually not like, oh, it's a 60 minute match. So we will now talk about it like four times as long. But we'll, sometimes we talk about longer matches a little longer. But anyway, um, I thought I could maybe talk about this, but they're actually because it's kind of a goofy thing. But I thought I might as well address it because it is kind of related to the show and Ring of Honor. And there is it is not related that, to the show, but it is related to one of the hosts. I have nothing yeah, to do with. The, I have nothing to do with this, and I want to make that completely clear. Yeah, let's make that clear. So, um, but I just kind of want to say it just because it's a weird thing, and also there is something at the end that, that kind of ties into the not anything to do with Matt, but with how I approach the show that I just kind of want to make clear. It's not. This is a serious. Trevor. This is Trevor Dame's show, so he gets to talk about Trevor Dame's stuff. That's how I see okay. it. <laughs> 
So, um, during Wrestle, I, I, I'm on Twitter. During WrestleMania, I did the usual thing I do, which is I do dumb tweets. And I wrote a tweet that I thought in the moment was innocuous, but I can quickly realize why it would not be seen that way. I can just read. I wrote, um, all those years ago, CM Punk mocked Kevin Owens on the Indies, made fun of him for wearing a T-shirt. 17 years later, Kev is getting Punk's unrealized dreams, main eventing WrestleMania, a match with Steve Austin, and he's doing it in his T-shirt. Now, um, I honestly swear to God, when I first wrote that, meant that far more in the spirit of, isn't this crazy how far Kevin Owens has come and how, like, remember how, you know, that was like the big negative on Kevin Owens was the t-shirt, not just from Punk or, or Gabe or anybody, but like, I remember, in fact, I might have even had a co- private conversations like with you back in the day, Matt, where I even said like, I don't think Kevin Owens will ever like, or Kev, obviously Kevin Steen then will ever get signed by WWE, even as a fan of him, as long as he's at the weight he's in wearing a t-shirt because they have, you know, WWE has such a body issues and i was completely wrong about that you know but in fact i think i also had a conversation where i was like i don't think brian with you once where i was like i don't think brian danielson will ever make it in wwe like and you were more i think you were more open to the idea that it could that he could and you were definitely the right one on that because again i just thought that they would not be wwe's biases would be so strong that they would uh not be able to surmount anyway sidetrack um so this tweet very quickly blew up and uh and uh I, I a lot of people liked it a lot of people didn't like it a lot of people got angry at me and uh I think very quickly what I realized is one reading it back like an hour or two later after all the cons I quickly realized yeah this comes off like more pointed than it and that's on me that's on the wording I did and the second thing was a lesson I think I learned from this that I should have learned earlier is like, you shouldn't like, you should be cognizant of if you tweet something, it can be carried to a lot of people that don't know you and kind of don't know your general range of opinions and stuff. Cause I noticed a lot of the people that were defending me were people that like have followed me for years and were like, kind of know how I feel or listeners of the show. And the people that were mad were people I've never seen in my life. And I was like, that probably again speaks to, me, you know, I, I, you know, if I make a tweet that only people that know me kind of understand the character of that, that's on me. So anyway, uh, CM Punk saw this tweet because a ton of people were tagging him and harassing him about it, which made me feel bad. And, uh, Punk wrote, insane after all these years, people still call, can, can watch that video, listen to Kev tell that story about Gabe making him wrestle in a shirt and blame me for Kev coming back into the locker room and yelling at me. I'm super happy for him right now. But that doesn't fit your narrative. Um, it's funny, like, uh, a lot of people got mad at me, in, especially after that tweet. I think the funny thing is, like, I am perfectly fine with that. Like, that's, people getting mad at me on the internet does not bother me, and I can understand people have a right to their opinion. I think that was more funny is I had a lot of people reach out to me privately. They're like, Trevor, are you okay? Like, um... I had a death in the family or something. Like, how are you holding up? Like in, in DMs and stuff. And I was like, it's, he made a comment. Like he it wasn't even that. I, I think Matt, you and I talked like it wasn't, it's not even that bad of a comment. Quite frankly, I, uh, I get well, worse comments on a monthly basis. To my credit, I didn't check if you were okay. I just mostly made fun of you. So, 
Yeah, yeah, yes. Um, <laughs> I believe you said something about like if you have to choose between punk and me, if it comes to that, you will choose punk over me. Yeah, well, I mean, um, come on. Let's let's be real. I mean, let's face it. He's going to be co-hosting the show next episode, so he'll he'll have a lot to say about Final Battle two thousand five. So <laughs> that so, man, uh, that man uh, would uh, is too good for me. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so I'm not going to ask him to marry me as much as I'd like to. <laughs> so. Anyway, um, so I will, again, stand by, like, I maybe should have never made the tweet at all, or at the very least could have done a lot better to been aware of what would have happened if it got spread to a bunch of people that, you know, I was still thinking, like, I had 100 followers. I have, you know, 9,000 followers, which isn't that many in the grand scheme of things. You know, it's not enough to get me, like, I'm not going to get sent free boxes of cereal to review them, Matt. But th- th- that's that's the real markup if you're an influencer or not. But it's enough that if I say something stupid and the right couple people retweet it, it can spread pretty far. And I should have been more cognizant of that. But the other thing I will say is uh, I also kind of felt bad just in general you know, after that punk tweet about like the content of the tweet, how people were interpreting it and thinking like, man, you know, more than just not the way I put it, but even just like, should I even be dredging up something like that? Even though I didn't, I, I just didn't mention it in a, as kind of an amazing story. And then people reached out to me, people in wrestling, people, I, uh, you know, I, I cannot say who they are, but uh, Matt, you know, the big one. And uh, I will just say, I stand by the content of the tweet. I felt a lot better after talking to some people. And I can't believe Hulk Hogan wrote you to tell you how much <laughs> he was on your side. Vince McMahon was like, Trevor, you know, and also I will just say for anyone that's going to try and do detective work, I, I, I hate being the person that's like, Oh, here's something. And I can't tell you about, I never do that almost because I never have anything to tell anyone about. I will just say, if you're going to sleuth by looking through who follows me on Twitter, it's no one who follows me on Twitter that, that reached out to me. But okay, um, so so it's not Hulk Hogan then, because he's one of your biggest fans. <laughs> oh my god! But so, but but the, anyway, the, where it relates to the podcast again, this is all just such a goofy, funny, weird thing, and it's no big deal. And is the first couple times I tweet about like punk on like Dynamite or something after that, um, a few people. Like mostly people that know me where they were just good naturedly joking were like, if I said something slightly positive about something Punk was doing, it was like, oh, you're just trying to suck up to him now. And they were joking or, oh, you're just being, you're getting back if it was something negative. And that is something I was, I didn't say respond to anyone in a bad way, but I was in my own head, like kind of like about that, because I will say something I do take semi-seriously is I think we on the show do a good job of kind of separating work from people and quite frankly again i'm not even like gonna have any ill feelings towards cm punk but like i i don't i don't cotton to the idea even as a joke that um although people can joke about but like i just want to say on this show i think we do a good job again of not you know, there are people that, have, that are related in wrestling that have said nice things to me or nice things about the show. Gabe Zakopalski we've talked about, you know, who, you know, big, big part of Ring of Honor. And, you know, people that in my days who have, as a dumb blowhard, who have said not, not nice things to me or don't like me. And I think if you listen to the show and listen to our opinions, you wouldn't be able to tell because – I don't really like the show is just about our opinions about the wrestling and it, the show is only as valuable as our opinions are honest. And I just want to say like, 
I'm never going to change my opinion about CM Punk or anybody based on if they like or dislike me in any way or have any minor positive or negative online interaction with me. And I, I just want to kind of assure listeners of that. Like, I still think CM Punk is one of the greats and one of my favorite wrestlers of the last 20, 30 years. I mean, I am a, a wrestling observer, uh, hall of fame voter as of last year. And I was invited to that voices of wrestling podcast. And I saw I was very close to voting punk in. If he had another good year in AEW, I would probably vote for him next year. And guess what? I, he's having another good year in AEW and I will probably vote for him in the wrestling observer hall of fame next year. So like nothing in my opinion about any of this is more or less negative. And, you know, like there are, I'm going to, I'll just say like, there are wrestlers that like, whose political beliefs, who have Twitter lives, who have bad stories about them, like far worse than anything that CM Punk has been accused of, that I can still be very, that I've still been very positive about on the show because they're great wrestlers. And likewise, I think anyone that's listened to the show and listened to us talk about like the booking or announcing of Gabe Sapolsky will know, I think could probably agree that even though He's been nice to us. Like, I think we've been very honest and even handed about both the good and the bad. And obviously there's more good than bad because if it, if we didn't, if Matt and I didn't think there was more good than bad, I don't think we'd be devoting so much of our, so many hours of our lives to doing a podcast about Ring of Honor. You know, this is just for fun. So, but I would, that, that was my big last takeaway was just like, nothing about this podcast is ever going to change. So don't worry about that. Don't fret. Don't overanalyze things. It's fine. I'm sure people were really worried about it. Um, no, but you'd uh, be surprised. <laughs> there were people reaching out to me. It just it, it it was people took it more seriously than I just took it now, and I just took it too seriously. Yeah, people, people, don't don't worry about our podcast. No, you, you shouldn't care about it. It's not it's not important. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but no, I mean you have to admit, Trevor. Even though it's good that you're not going to like change your thoughts on different wrestlers because of personal issues that you have you have to admit it would be kind of fun if this podcast became all about you settling personal scores people would i think people, <laughs> people would really enjoy that i think and uh, i would just and me... i would just sit here and be like uh okay i'm scared <laughs> I, I which is kind of what i do anyway let's be honest i think there's enough wrestling podcasts that are nothing but that i think we stand That's out true. by being it's almost like nowadays you're more of a rebel if you don't get a tattoo like it's we're like the podcast that doesn't have any tattoos or piercings um Fair. that's our new slogan by the way um we have scars we're scarred babies yes but, uh, <laughs> our baby we've been scarred ever since babyhood is that a word yeah. <laughs> that, that's my favorite spinoff to the show parenthood is babyhood that's babyhood. a good one instead of calling it uh uh, parenthood babies. <laughs> yeah, so I guess I should say something about all this, which is, uh, I like CM Punk. I like Trevor. Um, Can't we all get along? Yeah, I mean, if they have a if they have a match, I'll <laughs> I'll sit ringside. Oh, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be an impartial enforcer on the outside, um, and um, I'll run in and uh, make the three count after the referee gets knocked out. Like this just brought us closer together because like Punk and me. Punk and I have another thing in common now, which is we both get irritated by Trevor Dame. So, like, uh-huh. it has just brought us closer together uh, at this point. So, uh, anyway, that long, weird thing to say. Uh, time for the usual plug. And I realized the other day, Matt, the weird thing about the plug is the only thing we plug is feeds of the show. And, and I realized why some people who are long-time listeners or not long-time listeners might go, 
if I'm listening to the show, why do I need a plug for how to listen to the show? You I don't think it say. Start- you don't say. Uh, I know you probably, probably, but I will say this: one, it started as not really a plug for the show, it was a plug for the Pro Wrestling Only Podcast Network, which we were required to do, and I was glad to do. I, that's the only. It's only fair that we offer that instead. And now that we have like three ways to listen, I always want to make sure like people have found one way. Know know that they have options because there are some like if you are a listener and you are listening to the three year the years feed, uh, which is just us, just looking on any podcast that pans through the years, and it's just us. You might go, okay, I like the show, but it's kind of a feed where I get one show like every two to four weeks and nothing else. Like I want something that gets updated more. Well, if you go to the Pro Wrestling Only Podcast Network feed, it'll be our show and a bunch of other shows, so you'll have like a regular drip of good wrestling content. And uh, if you're on that feed, go, well, I just like Trevor and Matt's show, and it's really hard to find all the archives because there's a feed with a billion episodes of different podcasts in there. Well, then there's a feed that is just us. And if you like seeing one still image for three hours and listening to your podcast on a browser, I mean, we're on YouTube. So, I just, as always, like to let everyone know all of that. Matt, finally, we can get to the show. We're getting to the second last show of 2005. We are almost through. Steel Cage Warfare took place December 3rd, 2005 at Basketball City. Now, finally, it, something that I get to talk about for a while. I was really about to say this is your time to shine. <laughs> yes. This is your CM Punk in New York City. And for a report crowd of 850 fans, Matt, so Matt, before I hand it to you, a couple quick notes about the show overall. Um, in The Observer, Dave wrote, they de- Ring of Honor debuted a new location in New York, the Chelsea Pier, on December 3rd, said to be far superior to the New Yorker. Uh, Matt, I have a feeling you're about to disagree with that. Bigger as well, as they got 850 people in the place and could put 1,200 in for a big show if needed. Um, Brian Alvarez in the figure four wrote, Brian Gerwitz of WWE and Jesse Ward of TNA, a former Tough Enough One girl who is now a producer, were backstage at the show and spent some were, were at the show and spent some time backstage afterwards. Lance Storm was also there doing a shoot interview for the company. Of course, we'll see him later. So yeah, Matt, this was their first show in Basketball City. For people that don't know, Basketball City, I believe, was also like a practice facility for the New York Knicks basketball team. And I believe it was up on like the third floor of a building. Like uh, Matt, there's a lot of things people have said about Basketball City. I've never been to New York level Basketball City. What was Basketball City like? Oh, right. Well, so um, first of all, a few things. Um, if you really want to know the insider perspective of Basketball City, you should listen to episode 91 of An Honorable Mention. Yeah. Where Shane Hagedorn talks about being on the ring crew and getting the ring into Basketball City through a fire escape and having to cut the steel cage in half and weld it back together. <laughs> that was an amazing story. Getting it into the building. We also have um, some information from Eric Eels, um, which I don't know if you noticed that. He emailed us a few hours ago, Trevor. Oh, I didn't. Shit. Yeah, so we're going to, we're going to, we'll get to that a little bit. A little bit later. Um, so, you know, so we can get some extra information on this. But I'm just going to share my experience as a fan right now, um, which is um, – so it is true. So this – the original or – I don't know. Maybe it wasn't even the original. But the old Basketball City um, was up on uh, Pier 63, I believe it was, a little bit north of Chelsea Piers. So if you know New York City, that's where it was. And it was this weird pressurized dome thing. 
And like, you know, there are dome buildings, but like this one was like, because I guess the roof was like air pressurized, you couldn't just walk in and open the doors. You had to like go through, like there were two ways to get in as a fan. You either went through a revolving door or there was like, you went into like an inner area and then they closed the other door behind you so they could open the door into the Basketball City uh, arena. So getting in itself and getting out was a process and it was up a few flights of stairs. But the other issue was because of the way that the building was set up and how hard it was to get in and out, they didn't have any elevated seating. So like it was one of my least favorite experiences watching an ROH show, not anything to do with the show or even the people there, but because like I did, I got general admission tickets, which I usually get because as I told you, Trevor, I'm a man of the people. And, um, (laughs) I normally you go to an ROH show with general admission and either it has elevated like bleachers or it's like just a small enough place that you could just stand in the back and and see most of everything. Like I remember there were certain moments of Joe versus Kobashi where it was a little bit hard to see, but nothing too major, but I was like way far back. And like when I was sitting, I could see basically nothing. When I was standing, I I even, I really couldn't see that much. So anytime like a wrestler like did stuff on the mat, they basically disappeared. For me, and certainly yeah. on the floor, you could see guys like the heads of guys walking around, but not much. Luckily, in the main event, there was enough stuff like on the cage and like stuff like up and like jumping and stuff like mm-hmm. that that I pretty much was able to enjoy the main event. But like the Brian Danielson Jack Evans match, did those cage spots just for you. He was like, Matt needs to see this stuff. Right. But like the Brian Danielson Rocky Romero match, I basically didn't really see. Like, oh. you know, like I couldn't get that watching it. Um, and you know, I mean, uh, the, the New York City shows at the New Yorker Hotel and the shows at the Grand Ballroom of the uh, Manhattan Center had such electric atmospheres. Yeah. And Basketball City, it, you know, it wasn't bad, but it was just like – it was like just like a dingy like venue that felt like it could have been anywhere. Like it didn't yeah. have that special New York vibe to me anyway. Mm-hmm. The, the, the good news about the uh, – my experience in Steel Cage Warfare was is that I realized – if I was going to enjoy a show at Basketball City, I had to just get like normal, like close seats. So <laughs> you I, had to no longer be a man of the people. That's right. So for um for the next show, they had one other show at Basketball City, which was um, Best in the World in March of 2006, and I got third or second row tickets to that, and, and that was a much more enjoyable experience. But um yeah, it was not a good experience for the for the for the viewer if you did not have seats that were close and it was just annoying getting in and out and i could just imagine what a nightmare it was to um to set up and and work as a uh, you know as a ring crew or probably even any other kind of crew on that show now i'll say this basketball city still exists in manhattan but it's in a different location now it's uh, it's along it's on the east side now or like kind of like south street like mm-hmm. along the east river and it's like a normal building with a roof and stuff that you can walk in and out of. So it's – if they had a show there now, it probably be a little bit of a better experience. And there's like light that comes in and stuff. But this show in the depths of December in uh, just in this weird like dome thing, yeah, it was not the – it was not the best viewing experience. I don't want that to reflect on the show because, you know, I'm watching the show now you know, many years later and watching it on DVD. I don't have to worry about that. But as a live experience, it was one of the lesser ones during this era for me. 
yeah, like they were really hyping this up, like Gabe on commentary a few times. And, and like they, I mean, in a way, they needed to move to somewhere new because those New York, even though I agree, like the New Yorker Hotel had great atmosphere from the crowd and just a great kind of unique look. But obviously, those shows were incredibly cramped for the New York market. It was yeah, yeah. Small. This was this was much much bigger, much bigger. I mean, we saw in those shows, the New Yorker shows, where like it was so cramped that one side of the ring was basically pushed up right against the crowd barrier, so you had to basically kind of just scoot the wrestlers around that side. Like, but the problem was, uh, you basically said it. Like, the basketball city basically, all right, it's bigger, but then you lose every other advantage that the New Yorker places like that had. Like, no atmosphere. Yeah, I mean, crowd doesn't sound as good. The fact that it was bigger is what made it hard for me to see because I was far enough. Like, it was big enough that it was like I could be far enough back that it was hard to see from the floor. You know. Uh, and I think – I bet you most people that listen to the show have been to a wrestling show, but for those who haven't or are young or don't live in a major city but maybe are one day hoping, a pro tip I wish I knew when I was young and that you learned on this night I think is it is – if you are in a building – I mean you couldn't – you didn't have a choice on this show. But if you um are ever going to a show where there's like a floor and then like an elevated section and you have the option between getting one the very last rows on the floor – or the elevated section, or the, like one of the first rules of the elevated section, always go elevated section. Like, I remember when, um, the first major wrestling show I ever went to was WCW Nitro. It was a birthday present. And my, I was like, if you, I remember telling my parents, like, if you can get me floor seats, get floor seats, like any floor seats. And we got literally the last row on the floor and we had like, maybe not quite as bad as you, but a similar experience where I was like, the riser, was right behind me i was like we could have uh, the whole show i was thinking we could have saved money and had a way better view if we just took like first row of the elevated section right behind us and instead just because i was obsessed with the idea of if it's the floor it has to be the best like not all floor seats are created equal that's the lesson to take away from this definitely true yes that is definitely a lesson i never had another experience where it was this hard to see after this because i did learn that lesson so, um, yeah, Eric Eels, a uh, great listener who worked on the Ring of Honor Ring Crew, he sent an email. I did not catch it, so thank God, Matt, you caught it. Um, I will read some excerpts of it right now. He wrote, uh, Greetings and salutations, gentlemen. I want to regale you with my memories of Steel Cage Warfare, a.k.a. Fuck Basketball City. I don't know if Matt went to the show. He did. So if so, if so, this will be a very different perspective. Also, this will definitely be a long one, so feel free to piecemeal it. The build at Chelsea Pierce was an air pre- in an air pressure bubble within the gym, so you can only use the regular doors on the rotating or the rotating door at one time, not both. On top of that, the elevator was broken, so everything had to be loaded up the outside stairs leading up to the fourth floor. Um, in December, when it was snowing all day, as far as I can recall, if you haven't already heard Hagedorn talk about on honorable mention, we have. It really was the worst day ever for the ring crew. I know I'm not in the most in shape person, but even back then, I was 21, so I had the energy to make up for the belly to be able to carry all the beams, wood panels, etc. But I got so overwhelmed with body heat that at one point I had to excuse my, excuse myself to go to one of the locker rooms to lie down and take off my heavy coat and sweatshirt. It was that bad. I can barely recall how we got the cage parts up there, but we fucking did it. The show itself was good. Um, I remember watching the world title match with Xavier, who is visiting, and I remember feeling a little bad that he wasn't booked on the show and being involved. Matt, it seems like there's been three or four shows in 2005 after Xavier, like, recovered from his injury where there have been like reports of Xavier was backstage watching the show and they never brought him back until that one show like that 
unscripted show with where yeah. he wrestles Danielson. Yep. It's weird that he was such a like they got so cold on him, even though that he was still showing it. Like there must be a story to that. I just don't know if anyone ever does know any reason why Xavier kind of kept like clearly had a good enough relationship with people to like keep attending shows, but not to get booked um, through the years at gmail.com. Like I am fascinated by that. There is one um, at least like um, occasional listener that, uh, that probably knows, but um <laughs> But I'm not sure. We probably won't get him on record for this one. Um, Eric continues, Teardown wasn't as bad, but did have two humorous things going on. One was that they had Bobby Cruz ask the fans if they could bring their chairs with them back down the stairs to the first floor as that as that was where they were neat stored, which some fans did. Uh, uh, God, I think I might have done that. I don't, it's, <laughs> See, I, it's hard. It's, at this point, it's very hard to remember, honestly. Once again, I'm not, Matt, just knowing you, I would be, you know, I'd be almost willing to risk like a hefty sum of money that if someone told you to like do the nice thing and take your chair back down the stairs, you would have done. I would be shocked yes. if you were like, no, I'm not doing this. De- but de- the question is, was I asked? Because yes, definitely, if I was asked, <laughs> I would have done it. Two was as the other guys were tearing down the ring, I gathered up all the chairs left behind and tried to pile them together to be taken out later. As the curtains and poles for the entranceway went down, and I saw Lance Storm just sitting his chair straight forward, looking forward, and not even really moving or anything. He was waiting for Gabe and crew to bring him to his hotel room for his straight shooting interview they were going to record that night. As most of the wrestlers left the show and teardown continued, he just sat there. I swear he didn't really even really move. He just sat and waited. <laughs> That's a very, 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 very Landstorm story, huh? I just imagine not even having like a book, even though Matt uh, Landstorm noted a bookworm, like just sitting there, just unmoving, like just I will wait until I am told to, to go to a car, and just not even a thought in his head. Um. Anyway, Eric continues. That brought a little levity to a very tense situation with getting everything back down as the snow continued to fall. Now, I will pre- preface this by saying that I was 21. And most of the crew was in their early 20s. And there was a brief divide between the students and the non-students who helped out. And we've been there for, for you. We've been there for you all day. So there was friction bubbling up to the surface. Somewhere around 3 or 4 a.m. as we were finishing up, tensions boiled over. As I was probably complaining why it was taking so long and got into it with Shane. Almost leading to blows. I don't think anyone really tried to stop us from doing anything, but I think we all, we just almost went to that tipping point and pulled back at the last moment. So yeah, those are my primary memories. And this email is long enough, so I won't even bother to get to the cra- into the crash and flip with lightning, lighting director Mary's car on the way home. Oh my Trevor, gosh. I, Trevor's eyes must be rolling back from reading all this. No, this is a fantastic email, Eric. Um, just wish Mary a happy birthday today, and thanks for all the entertainment and analysis. Take care. Happy Eric, birthday, Mary. Eric, one of the great listeners of the show, and happy birthday, Mary. Absolutely. Um, and th- this is also one good thing to bring up, too, is you really like listening to like stories like this. Like I think the unsung heroes, obviously, of a lot of wrestling shows, and I, that's why I kind of like like Undertaker kind of on his Hall of Fame speech giving like props to unsung heroes, or when Ultimate Warrior even did on his Hall of Fame speech. Like the people that just set up the shows in wrestling, they do not get enough credit. How much like just t- like unsexy, like sweaty, thankless, low to no paying work it is it's to probably, do that, and how it's probably you're there for it's probably hours. it's probably sometimes sexy. <laughs> well. Depends on the promotion. You know, Eric <laughs> did say he had to take off his 
Yeah, there you go. Thank you so much, Eric. Seriously, like that's a that was that was a huge addition to these uh, these stories that we're telling. Um, and actually, can I go on? A, can I go on a little tangent since you mentioned the Ultimate Warrior thing? Um, Absolutely. It's just it's just hilarious to me. And uh, people say that I apparently people think I bash WWE too much on the show, but I um, somebody does anyway. Um, but that's your CM Punk thing. Yeah, <laughs> one but, one mildly negative review on of the podcast that said we bash WWE too much. Well, no, they said, they, the they, way, they said I do specifically. You barely ever do. And by the way. This is a Ring of Honor podcast. That's like saying, like, if we had a podcast about Pepsi, someone saying, man, occasionally you say disparaging things about Coke. Like, what do you expect? Like, you, know, I, you, know, I rec- you know, I recently realized that I haven't had, I haven't tasted Pepsi in, like, more than 20 years. Or not, maybe not more than 20, wow. but, like, at least 18. That's pretty crazy, right? Um, as long as since I've been on a slide. Yeah, exactly. Um, that's a reference <laughs> to a conversation we had a while ago. Um Anyway, um, so, but I am going to bash WWE here. It was why I was what I'm setting up for. Um, it's, yeah, no. well, no, it's just like, it's really funny that the Ultimate Warrior was like, um, uh, you know, I wish you'd have an award for the unsung backstage heroes, like the people that do merchandise and music and whatever. And then WWE was like, oh, yeah, we should have the Warrior Award where we just do PR and talk about how much we care about people who have diseases and like, like all the, or just are, heroes that we had nothing to do with you know like not that i'm sure the people who get those awards appreciate it and like it's it's a really nice moment and stuff like so i'm not denigrating them at all like they all deserve awards but it is just funny that they named it after the ultimate warrior which because that had nothing to do with what he was saying you know that so i'm not i'm not criticizing the award or the recipients i want to make that very clear but i am uh, criticizing the way they reappropriated the ultimate warrior's name for that particular award no, that has always blown my mind too. In fact, I think I wrote about that once. I think I wrote for my Patreon once, like a review of the first Ultimate Warrior documentary. And like, it's always blown my mind that this guy, like, Ultimate Warrior, if you don't know, had a lot of not good opinions about people and things and, and, and you know, frequently personality. You know, um, if I said everything I thought about Ultimate Warrior and he was still alive, he'd probably send a slightly, more than a slightly irritated tweet to me. Um, and one of the most genuine, nice, like thoughtful things he had ever did was like you just said on that on that Hall of Fame speech. He went out of his way to like do something that a lot of wrestlers that are far more well liked than Ultimate Warrior never did in their Hall of Fame speeches, which is like props to all the like the workers that do not get like their due in behind the scenes in wrestling companies. And he even goes out of his way to say there should be a war an award for this, a Jimmy Miranda award. And without him knowing it, it's like basically he li- like Matt. Think about this. I mean, it's not technically quite true, but it's almost like WWE basically ignored the Ultimate Warrior's dying wish. Like, it's one of the last things he ever said. Okay, well, you said it, not me, but yeah. I, I know, but, but I mean, like, he didn't mean it in this. It didn't say it on his deathbed, but literally, like, hours later, he died. It's one of the nicest things he ever said. Like, a really genuine, generous idea and thought that would have been very nice. And WWE, like you said, was just like, well, we can use this for PR. Like, yes, now, we now. can just... You, you know, like, like you know what they what they said. You know the idea we part of this idea we like warrior the part where we get to use your name. Yes, the rest yeah, of it we'll throw away. Yeah, no, no, it's okay. So, like, and I just want to be really clear. Like, people like Chad Gaspard, like, absolutely deserve to be honored. Like, absolutely, there's no doubt about it. Like, he did a, a great, great thing, and like, I'm you know very like you know happy that his for his family that he was able to be honored like that, right? Um, yeah. But the, the unrelated to that. 
Ultimate Warrior's idea was good too. Like I support the idea of like behind the scenes workers that never get any respect or I shouldn't say never get any respect, but never get any um, attention, or, you know, and, and I'm sure a lot of them don't want it, but I'm sure some of them probably would like to be honored for their contributions. And the, that was a really nice idea. And like, you could do both. You could do both. Yeah. So you could do, I mean, you could do, if you want to do this warrior award, like, you know, and honor like people like, like Chad, like great. But like also do the Jimmy Miranda, Jimmy Miranda award, like the warrior mentioned, like, cause that's a good idea too. And, you know, I know people will say, oh, well, you know, the award shows are also partly a draw. That's not sexy. You could fit one of those into an award show. And quite frankly, I bet you a lot of those people in WWE that have worked behind the scenes for years, if not decades, have some pretty interesting stories to tell. Like, I would, I bet you, like, the seamstresses and all that stuff, I bet you they could tell you some fucking fun anecdotes, you know, in a a 10-minute speech. Absolutely. But anyway, so we will get to the show proper. I, I promise that we will get to it. Uh, we open with a brief clip of Jay Lethal and Samoa Joe as a tag team, followed by a clip of Jay Lethal walking away from Samoa Joe mid-promo at the end of the previous show. We then get a hot and fresh Jay Lethal promo here with an on-screen graphic telling us it's from ringofwaterwrestling.com. So again, Ring of Honor was really starting to push the, you know, we are getting video angle development videos on the on the website and some of them end up getting thrown onto the dvd first but you're getting them on the website first so you know ring of honor getting into the digital media age matt um a somber jay tells us that the start of a wrestler's career is very important but he's ashamed of his the one that he spent as a member of special k he credits samoa joe for getting him out of there and teaching him a lot he said joe jay says joe became his family in 2005, Jay did a lot of things on his own. He won the pure title. He feuded with low key. But then Samoa Joe beat him for the pure title. And he says he can't forget that. He keeps getting called Joe's protege all the time. He says there comes a time when a man stands alone and says he challenges Joe to a match tonight, friend to friend. Jay promises to step out of Joe's shadow and says it's something that he needs to do. Um, there was content here to make a good promo, but as we kind of talked about in a lot of these Jay Lethal promos, Jay tried a bit tried a bit to emote, but at this point he just was mostly monotone, mumbly, and not a great verbal storyteller. And it's again, that's no I mean, Jay Lethal was twenty years old here. It, it's amazing that he was already a pretty darn good in-ring worker. So the fact that he was also not at the age of twenty yet a good promo, like that's no great like big dig on him. But the impression I got on recent shows and especially on this show is just, he was not ready to carry like the character aspect of any big angle or promo or moment. Yeah. I mean, but it's admirable that they tried, you know, like yeah. I think it's worth trying and he was definitely getting better, right? Like it's not like, yes. this, like this was clearly a lot of better of a promo than he would have cut even like six months earlier. So it's not all bad, but yeah, no, he wasn't ready for quite this. I will say it was interesting that it was very clearly to me a parallel, like probably intentional to the promo that Joe cut before A Night of Tribute, where it was sort of like this slow, measured journey through his career, like the way Joe did yeah. for him. But, you know, in relation to Samoa Joe. So I um, I think overall, like, I think this was a positive, even though the promo delivery wasn't particularly good. And I wonder if a lot of this, too, is because both of those promos, what they have also have in common is that they were both for – a couple of the first promos for the Ring of Honor website. If maybe Gabe was kind of thinking like, you know, I need the, I want these kind of promos for the website to be kind of things that 
are very newbie friendly. Like we'll, we will explain not just this feud, but basically like half of this wrestler's history in the company. So, you makes, know, makes sense I, to me. I think that that sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah. As a kind of a gateway entry. I don't know how many people's first exposure to the ring of honor would be just like a random video on the website, but I could see that be maybe why both these promos were like, I think that was a really good point that you caught just there about like, they are both very much like, let me go through the last year or in Joe's case, let me go through like the last four years and, Maybe that is why. But next we go to Ring of Honor Commissioner Jim Cornette in an office somewhere. He says, Nigel McGuinness is still on tour with Pro Wrestling Noah in Japan. Claudio Castagnoli is on tour in Mexico. So that is not what, that is why they are not on the show this week, on this episode, this show. Um, Jim says, Nigel made him look foolish on a ring of, on a recent Ring of Honor show when he said there'd be, where Jim said there'd be deserving champions. And then while Cornette was in a backstage meeting, Nigel, when he was wrestling Claudio, produces a foreign object and gets Claudio DQ'd by framing him for using it. Jim says, next time Claudio and Nigel are on the same show, there will be a pure title rematch between the two. And the fir- for the first time in Ring of Honor history, there will also be two referees, one in the ring, one outside. Jim then warns Homicide's thugs and Colt Cabana not to do interfere in tonight's Homicide versus Steve Carino match, or there will be some heavy fines. Um, the heavy fine thing always gets you like, that's the part, one of those Jim Cornette things that seems outdated because, like, I, I feel like there's a way, even though where all fans know wrestling isn't real now, like, you can still give sticks. Like, if you say, if, you know, if, Cor- if um, anyone interferes in this match, they're not in the promotion for, like, they're not booked for six months. Even though we all know, like, the storyline is fake, we, the stip can be real. Everyone watching this knows, like, Cole Caban- then or anyone that interferes is not getting fined. But... That was a delightfully old school touch, I would say, I guess. I will say this. I thought this was the best Jim Cornette, like, remote promo so far because it – honestly, it answered a lot of the criticisms we've had the past few months because, you know, we criticized the idea that Jim Cornette, you know, came in and saying titles, you know, titles – people are going to – people who win titles are going to get – are going to deserve it and, you know, we're going to follow the rules here. And then he actually acknowledges, like Nigel made him look stupid. So we're, uh, you know, this, and and also we acknowledge, he acknowledged because we were wondering, like, how's Claudio getting another title shot after he lost and then keeps losing, right? Yeah. And then and then Jim Cornette's like, well, because of the way he lost last time, we're gonna get, you know, yeah. just to kind of get back at Nigel. So I actually really appreciated the little uh, touches they put into this promo to make things make sense because I don't think most wrestling companies would have even bothered with that at that point. They'd be like, oh, that was two months ago, whatever. Let's move on. Um, the other thing is. Um, I will say this too, the, on the negative side, if Cornette is mad about people getting away with breaking rules, there are things he's not going to like about this show. <laughs> we'll get into that. But yeah, no, that's a great, that's a great point too, especially because I think a lot of Jim Cornette's big strengths, and it was particularly like people would talk about this back when he booked uh, Ohio Valley Wrestling, which used to be WWF's uh, developmental company, is that the people would always say one of Cornette's great strengths as a booker there was like, he could get like tossed like things that would really screw up his booking and find ways to make them make sense. Like WWF would do things with some of his wrestlers that would like kind of upset his plans. And he would always find ways to kind of like justify and explain it and work it into his plans. And so like, th- yeah, like this is uh, the strength of Jim Cornette is you can have kind of mad booking about the details of things. And Jim Cornette can come up with a reason. I'm sure probably in like five minutes of thinking that sounds compelling and reasonable about like, well, this is the why this, you know, it doesn't seem like Claudio just lost two matches in a row since he's, he lost his last title shot. Why is he getting another title shot when you say like title shots have to be earned? And like you said, like Cornette just very quickly comes up with a good reason. So 
Um, there was two dark matches on the show. Most interesting for the fact that they were not the usual Ring of Honor dark matches where uh, it's Ring of Honor students. Th- these were all wrestlers um, from the, I guess, newly shut down Pro Wrestling Iron promotion in California, which was also a uh, wrestling school run by uh, Ring of Honor alums Donovan Morgan and Mike Modest. The two dark matches were Oliver John defeats Ryan Drago and Joey Harder, what a name, uh, defeats Apollo Khan. Uh, the one person people might know would be Ryan Drago, who fans would know better as Simon Gotch, a.k.a. Simon Grimm, you know, to pay if you follow them in the WWE or uh, the the Indies. And uh, Dave Meltzer in the in his uh, little live report wrote, uh, John, who works like a 70s heel, was the most impressive. So uh, now I assume you have no memories of these matches if you even saw them. Yeah, I'm, not, I'm honestly not sure if I'll even, I even saw them, honestly. Yeah. So, and that brings us to the opener that everyone gets to see if they buy the DVD, is a tag team match. Jason Blade and Kid Mikazi defeated the Ring Crew Express of Dunn and Marcos in 9 minutes, 54 seconds, when Mikazi pinned Marcos after he hit what Prezak on commentary calls an inverted shooting star press. What I would say is it's just a, Mikazi is standing backward on the top rope, like he's facing the crowd. He jumps backwards, but does a forward flip with his legs landing on Marco. So almost like a tumbleweed leg drop, but he's just facing the opposite direction. Very cool move. Uh, Matt, we had recently saw, seen this match on a show. This, this is just a rematch with a different result in a few minutes longer. What'd you think about it? Yeah, well, the first one, we I think we both kind of agreed. It was kind of fun, and but it was like, pretty sloppy. Mm-hmm. And um, this one, um, less sloppy, um, I think more intense. Um, still some sloppiness. I will say that there are a few things. Um, the first noteworthy thing of the night to me was Jimmy Bauer is back on commentary. Uh, uh, Lenny Leonard, I guess, was sick and couldn't do the show, so we get Gabe for the whole show. Which I don't know. I thought I sort of thought it was a treat. Uh, I, yeah. I not that I don't love Lenny Leonard, but you know it was nice. A nice change of pace. I missed Gabe on commentary a little bit. You know, doing something other than that shtick where he's like, "Oh, you're drunk again." You know, like, <laughs> I, I, you know, I don't know. There, there's char- there's some there's charm in Jimmy Bauer on commentary. It's 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 an, a classic ROH sound, I guess, is what I would say. Um, but yeah, like no, they're they're you know, Blade and Mikazi do do cool moves. I will say that, but it's not you know, it's not tight like you know you get with some of these like real top notch aerial guys. Um, they do some cool double team stuff, a double Japanese arm drag, which is really cool. Mikazi does his spinny kicks. I, you know, I, I always like them in the, in the matches we've seen so far. Um, there, there are a couple of, like I said, awkward spots. Like, uh, at one point, uh, Dunn messes up a roll up and the crowd is very unforgiving. They're booing him a lot. For that. I'm like, wow, this is not a nice, nice crowd of nice people um that's 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 how i would describe it not a nice crowd of nice people and um there was another one where um marcos does this like really awkward northern lights bridging suplex on mikazi and gabe says nicely done but i was like i mean it's not it's not the move i would have said that on there were things in this match that were nicely done uh, but i that wasn't one of them um but you know it's just it's just a little bit more of an intense version of what we saw there is um uh, they 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 work over um, Mikazi for a long time, Don and Marcos do. But then when Blade comes in, he doesn't really do a hot tag. He just sort of does a blind tag on an Irish whip, and and then he kind of while Mar- Mikazi's running the ropes, he does a surprise dive onto done on the outside, and then Blade comes in with a crossbody for two. So they kind of avoided the the hot tag for some reason, but they still did some cool moves at the end. And like you said, the uh, 
the final spot with that, I guess, reverse or inverted shooting star press was really cool. And, and Mikazi got the win off of that. So, I, you know, I, I feel like it was very similar to the first match, but a, I would say half a star better just in terms of the level of work. That's how I would say it. I kind of felt this was on like another decent above average match from these two teams. I, I thought it was on the same level, but it, for different reasons. I agree with you. I, the way I would put it is I thought this was, like you said, less botchy, although there was still, as you pointed out, some botches, but also um, a little bit slower maybe because it was longer. So uh, it's kind of like pick your poison. Do you want to be kind of more of a slap bang, like a few minutes and really sloppy or just kind of sloppy and more of a full length matches. It's kind of up to you. Um, I would say Mikazi and blade continued like to mildly impressed. Sounds like more of a diss. And after that CM Punk tweet, Matt, I am worried about how my words come out, but I would say like, the way I would put them so far, moderate, moderate, moderately impressive. How about that? Exactly. Yeah. Like the way I would put it is like, in their performances so far, I never go like, wow, they stole the show. But every time it's like, I can see more of that. Like, they they do well they do good well enough like i i think on every show so far they have broken out like a new cool at least one cool new double team spot which i appreciate and they're just so far in their few matches they've been good at just having like spot oriented kind of fun quick kind of mindless action fun matches and uh my favorite moment here actually was a uh, blade hits an an inverted atomic drop and he just stays in the kneeling position and holds his opponent in place. And then Mikazi runs up Blade's back and hits, I forget what was done on Marcos, with a knee in the face. And I thought that was just like a really neat, that's, and again, one of those cool, one of the biggest compliments I can give to a move when I'm watching wrestling from 17 years ago is like, someone should use that today because it would get over. Because it's it just, that's a really cool move that you don't really see. Um, with Don Marcos, all I right, can All right, all right, I'll use it. <laughs> When you and Punk team up on me, I, I, you can do the run, Matt. Okay. Um, no, I think I want to. I think I want to knee you in the crotch. So I, I think I'll do the atomic drop. <laughs> Matt, you don't have to wait for a match to do that. But um, <laughs> so Dunn and Marcos, uh, like I, I feel bad because I'm a big Dunn and Marcos fan. But I continue to feel like on these, you know, and their their string is running out in Ring of Honor. They will be back for a few more matches in 2006. But like. I just feel like I've kind of seen everything there is to them. Like they are a team that they're a great undercard act, but they're, you know, I, I think I've said this before. I wish they kind of were in the territory days because they're the kind of act where they should be able to do this act for their entire careers. But whenever it kind of gets stale in one place, just take it to a new territory. Unfortunately, you know, this wasn't really the era where they could do that. And They'd be really fresh in AEW, Tony Khan, hint, hint. <laughs> I, I would watch, you know, a Dunham Marcos match. Like, put them on Dark for a match. But I don't know what their shape, what shape they're in right now, but, I mean, I th- there would be at least five fans of that crowd who would get a big kick out of it. We wouldn't even have to be two of them. Um, And, that, Matt, I'm also glad you pointed out that Lenny isn't on commentary. This is probably just me reading too much into things. I have no idea if this is real or not, but I did think it was interesting that this is the show Lenny's not on commentary on. Well, on the last show, we had that little news story that's saying that um, Lenny had gotten to in an argument with uh, Gabe backstage at FIP, but they had smoothed it all out. And then the very next show, probably when they were recording commentary, Lenny's not. And there was kind of some weird comments where, like, um, they say Lenny has some food poisoning from bad sushi, and Gabe's like, it must have been some really bad sushi. And also, did you notice that Prezak is like... um. 
threatening Gabe was like, you know, like Gabe, if you don't do your job, like Mark Nolte can always waiting in the wings. And I was, it almost felt like a bit of a dig, but not really, but it was funny that like they even brought him up at all. <laughs> um, because at one point in commentary, like the thing that made me just wonder if this was more of a, just during that brief whatever, or maybe it really was just sickness, was just because at one point Gabe is like he Gabe he says something at one point where he's like, I wonder if I'm back for good. And I was like, mm. part of me wonders if there was like for a brief second they were thinking like, might this have to be the team? Like if Lenny for some reason doesn't stay there, like is it just back to Gabe and Prazak? I, I don't know, but I guess at least anyway, temporarily it would be. Yeah, but. Lenny comes back on the next show. We go backstage to Austin Aries. He says that when we he go, so this is something um every member of Generation Next and the Embassy gets a promo or at least the opportunity to cut a promo backstage to kind of set up the main event tonight between them in Steel Cage Warfare. Which you know I will say this almost basically all these promos are very. There's not much substance to them. A lot of them aren't very good. But I do appreciate little touches like this to try and make a match or a show seem different and more important. I like that everyone here, like, since it's a big feud-ending um, match, like, everyone gets a chance to talk. Aries here says, um, when he got into wrestling, a wise man told him that you have to separate business from personal matters. Aries says he's done that to make his way to the top. But somewhere along the line, it got personal between him and Alex Shelley and him and Prince Nana. At this point, I wrote my notes Really, Austin? You don't know why it got personal between you and Alex Shelley. Like, you turned on him and beat the crap out of him on a show and kicked him off his own stable. But anyway, because Aries was very much this pro, like, I don't know what happened. I'm like, that's the energy of this promo. Uh, Aries says, Nana having life handed to him on a silver platter gets to him. Tonight in Steel Cage Warfare, there will be nowhere to hide, and Generation Next will stake its claim as the top faction in Ring of Honor. My favorite part of either of these two promos is that after Nana was done... He says you're gonna see. He says you're gonna see blood and everything you thought you didn't see. And then as they cut away, as he's walking off, and you see that ROH logo like flash the screen for like the wipe, you know. Um, mm-hmm. you, he just he just adds one extra. You fools! Like like <laughs> while like while he's off screen, cut away. I'm just like that is perfect. <laughs> so yeah, we cut to Prince Nana backstage. Nana says he will put Generation Next in their grave tonight. He says, you're going to see blood. I thank God you caught that because I did not, for whatever reason, include that in my notes for that part. The, the, the second part of not just what you will see apart from blood. And he laughs at Jade Chung's recent incident of getting her face bashed in on by the greens from Ghana. Um, he says, tonight the embassy will be established as the top faction in Ring of Honor. And that brings us to the Ring of Honor top of the class trophy match. Davey Andrews successfully defends the trophy when he defeats Pele Primo by ref stoppage in one minute, 27 seconds when Pele passed out in a side choke. I think this was uh, Pele Primo's uh, main show debut, at least in a match. Uh, he was uh, uh, certainly an extra, I believe, in the angle we saw where uh, Chad Collier bashed uh, a Steel's head in with the chair and made him bleed buckets. He was like a prop in that. But um this is his first match, I believe, on a main card. And what I will say is, Pele showed about as much personality, I think, as a wrestler possibly can in 87-second squash match <laughs> that you lose. Like, he's running around screaming like a little spitfire. 
He's throwing like these cool, futile little underdog strikes. He's selling, I would say, the right kind of over the top where he's selling, you know, out on his feet in a big way. And then that old, like, I'm held up only by the rope stuff. He gets murdered with a slap, then a German suplex and a power bomb. I, I just wrote my notes in a minute and a half. Tiny Spitfire Pelly already has more, is, was already way more interesting than competent, growly rookie who is stiff Davy Andrews. And that's nothing really against Davy Andrews, but it's just like, to me, I was already like way more interested in Pele Primo in just in this minute and a half. And um, also, did you notice, Matt, before the match started, Pele Primo does Hook's entrance. He puts his head on the turnbuckle with his back to Dave Andrews. And then when like the bell sounds, he like turns around and starts running at Andrews, of course, <laughs> gets his ass kicked. But Hook, huge Pele Primo fan. You heard it here first. I, I genuinely didn't notice that. I will say this. I agree with you about Pele, although I definitely think I'm higher on Dave Andrews than you. Like I, I always have been. I've been enjoying him for the past few shows. So I don't, I don't, I definitely don't have the 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 think the thought that you have. But I, but I, yeah, I, I agree with you. Pelly did a really good job in the time that he had. I did think. I mean, the one other notable thing besides what you said is it was funny that. Um, uh, so after Pelly tries his little flurry, Davey covers up and then he just smacks Pelly in the face and knocks him down. And there's this really loud "You got bitch slap" chant, which was you know common in ROH at the time. But I was just like, man. If only this crowd was at the Oscars, what would have happened? <laughs> uh, um, we're being topical on this episode, so I might as well have done that joke, right? We're, we're the last people to get in a Will Smith Chris Rock joke. Uh, the door is sh- we're sh- closing the door because we're the last people in this house. But um, uh, I, I don't mind. Like, Davey Andrews, I think it was, was pretty good for his level of experience. I mean, most of the Ring of Honor rookies, I, well, at least the ones that kind of became more notable, I think were good for the very limited experience they had. Maybe not very good, but like, Better than I think a lot of people would be with that fresh out of wrestling school with that few number of matches and those matches being as short as many of them were. But I just feel like, you know, Davey Andrews is an archetype we've seen a lot in wrestling, which is like growly, stiff guy with kick pads or whatever. And, you know, there's great wrestlers that do that, but I feel like it's a little less fun than the Pele role. And also the problem is like that role goes better, Pele's with how Ring of Honor students were, were booked because like it is hard to come off as like a great badass like Davey Andrews kind of style would point him to at this point when he gets booked like the highest of the students but still like a student who gets treated pretty badly as we will see in a second. Well, they, well, Pelle, well, well like, they clear, I think the angle that we're about to – you're about to talk about was clearly building up to something that never came because Davey Andrews left, right? Yes. Yeah. For So for those who don't know, this is the second last Ring of Honor show Pelly, I mean, uh, Davey Andrews ever does because he quits wrestling after Final Battle, the next show. And uh, I don't know why. And I'm not even going to try and find out why, because I know from um, listening to the Honorable Mention podcast, like, you know how our, our quest with wrestling was to try and find Matt Thompson, the fabled super tall giant rookie who had like one in, impressive performance in Ring of Honor in the first year. And the quest is not over. The quest is not over. Tony Khan's no. gonna, Tony Khan's gonna bring him back. He's gonna find him. He's gonna pay him <laughs> insane amounts of money and he's gonna, be, he's gonna be po- Samoa Joe's protege against that giant guy that Jay Lethal brought out. It's gonna happen. <laughs> You know, that guy, he's to appeal to the Indian market. The other market is the through the years market that's going to appeal with him. But um, we, need, we need to get through to the deep vein thrombosos. Although, you know what? I think they've already done a lot to do that. Yeah. I feel like they've been targeting us for a while. But I, 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 but I was just saying um, 
the honorable mention guys, I feel like if they have any sort quest that is equivalent to our Matt Thompson quest, it is, you know, they have been trying to find out like what the hell happened to Davy Andrews and why he just dropped off the face of the earth. And if they don't know, especially because Shane Hagedorn, like, worked ring crew, traveled with, like, work trained with Davy Andrews, and if he can't figure it out, find it out, there's no chance I'm going to find it out. So that is their quest. So if anyone can help them, get in contact with them, because, like, they 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 have their own Ring of Honor mystery there. But, um, so after the match, a bunch of students rush in to check on Pele and hand Davy his top-of-the-class trophy. We get a quick, weird, odd jump cut to Reyes just in the ring. We cut out his little entrance, and he's holding a mic. Ricky Reyes, uh, he wants to know why Ray of Honor set up a match for these ass clowns. And he not, says ass not- clowns twice. <laughs> Ricky Reyes, big Chris Jericho fan. Um, he says he's he squashed all the students in under a minute, and now he wants to beat the crap off all of them one by one together right now. He proceeds to do that very quickly. He destroys five students in short order, just a couple moves each. We get to, see, just, some, we get to see some Rhett Titus here and the Dempseys. Yeah, and um, they, you know, they attack him like one by one, and Davey Andrews just watches in the corner. Like, it just looks kind of stupid and then when he turns back after he takes out all these students ricky reyes davy andrews then blind signs him with a spear and they brawl but reyes quickly gets the advantage and then creams andrews with the top of the class trophy he gently possesses the trophy in the ring he walks on andrew walks on top of andrews then spits on andrews and just walks out of the ring and leaves andrews laying um I, I thought that this was like the most personality Reyes has shown in Ring of Honor. I thought he actually showed some charisma, like just destroying these guys and on the mic. And I thought the segment also surprisingly got somewhat over with the crowd. Like they weren't really into it. Didn't sound like to me like they were very into. Oh, here's Ricky Reyes. But by the time they were done, I think they were kind of into him just destroying students. Yeah, the, his, his talking was actually not bad, except for overuse of the word ass clowns. Yeah, exactly. Um, unfortunately, it got them cheering the heel as he punked out the. This is yet again. It seems like every every match Davy Andrews has had is winning the top of the class trophy has been him getting squashed by a heel. Like first it was Adam Pierce, then Jimmy Rave. Now not even a match. It's 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 Ricky Reyes. But you know, at this point, what's the point? Of even complaint? It's the Ring of Honor students, so they're not they're the lowest order on the totem pole. And then in addition to that, um, like. Again, uh, Davey, I don't know if Ring of Honor knew this at this time, but Davey Andrews would be gone in one more show anyway. So I do think if they had gotten to finally to the match and Davey Andrews won, I do think that would have gotten over pretty big. Mm-hmm. The, the Reyes-Davey Andrews match, which I, I'm, pr- I'm almost positive that's what they were building to, and Davey Andrews would have beaten him. I, 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 I think that would have gotten over pretty well, personally. Yeah. Unfortunately, does not happen that way. Uh, next, we have a Roderick Strong backstage promo. Roddy is wearing what I can only describe as one of my grandmother's blue sweaters. It appears he stole that from her wardrobe. Um, Strong says Rave has only made things worse, taking out Jay Chung, laying him out on the last show. He, he, and then in a moment, Matt, that really makes me laugh. Roddy, in really trying to be serious and hype up the show, he says, and I quote, December 3rd. Basketball City, Steel Cage Warfare. And I just wrote, that does not sound as badass as you think it does. Like, one disadvantage to running shows on Basketball City is you can't ever say, you can't, it's not like saying, you know, WrestleMania, you know, April 3rd, Madison Square Garden. You can't say uh, Steel Cage Warfare, Basketball City. Like, that <laughs> it's like Polo Wonderland, SummerSlam. Like, what? Um, Sports Plus. Rock- <laughs> 
Um, Roddy says he's going to give Rave backbreakers until he can't walk and pound his face until it's broken in pieces. I just, I kept thinking for like five minutes after this promo of things like that. of just like, you know, you know, November 22nd, you know, all out. Um, Dave and Fuddruckers, you know, the, like just stuff like that. Um, well, there is a there is a major arena called like the Smoothie King Center, right? Yeah, exactly. Like stuff like that, I would love. Like um, next, we have a Jimmy Rave backstage promo. Jimmy, meanwhile, if, if uh, Roderick stole one of my grandma's sweaters, Jimmy looks like he's like like any me or anyone I knew dressed up for their fourth grade like class photo. It's kind of adorable, <laughs> actually. Um, Rave says he beat AJ Styles. He sent CM Punk packing out of Ring of Honor, and tonight he cements his legacy by taking out Generation Next once and for all. It's a really good heel line for for Jimmy Rave to say he sent CM Punk packing, even though like CM Punk beat him very soundly in the feud and didn't leave the company until like two or three months after he was done having any interaction <laughs> with Jimmy Rave. Uh, maybe the idea is just like I was so annoying to CM Punk. That he eventually left to get away from me. Like, <laughs> that could be true. I mean, I can, I very relatable. But, uh, uh, next up, we have a Ring of Honor tag team title match. Sal Renaro and Tony Mamaluk successfully defend the titles when they defeat Colt Cabana and Milano Collection AT in 15 minutes, 22 seconds, when Renaro pinned Milano after he and Mamaluk hit them with a double team elevated DDT. I guess I would kind of describe it as, um, almost like the KRS1 that, um, uh, the Kings of Wrestling, Claudio and Chris Hero used to do, but ending in a DDT. So basically you take a guy, you kind of set him so he's lying horizontally on both your shoulders, and then you just drop them down into, in this case, a DDT. Really cool um, finisher, actually. Uh, Matt, you know, kind of a weird, like, just thrown together team. Gabe actually does, I thought this was Gabe's best moment on commentary of the whole night. An example, one of the strengths Gabe could actually add occasionally to commentary, which is as Booker, he can explain things. Because I going into this, I was kind of like the Cornette thing earlier with uh, Nigel and Claudia going, why the hell is this match for a title? Colt and um, Milano has ha- have had exactly zero matches as a tag team here in Ring of Honor. But Gabe on commentary says, Sal and Tony put on an open contract. He says, similar to the ones they answered. So basically, you know, the, the idea is, you know, they answered open contract to win the tag title, so they're kind of returning the favor here. And then he says Colt answered the uh, open call, and then he picked Milano because since he was wrestling two Italians, he felt he needed an Italian influence to defeat the Italian champs. So I actually thought that was kind of a cute way to explain a clearly very thrown-together makeshift who do we got available, like how do we use them on the show kind of match. But Matt, what do you think about the match itself in terms of the quality of it. Well, speaking of wrestlers who surprisingly don't have don't have any other matches in Ring of Honor after Final Battle, um, <laughs> we have Milano Collection AT, who Gabe says very early on in the match will be a mainstay in ROH well into 2006. So you know, oops. Um, but um, I I do I, I I did like this match like I have more than I thought like because it did feel very thrown together. But I thought both teams did a good job, especially I was especially impressed honestly with Renaro and Mama Luke. I feel like you know if they had stuck with them or built them up more like to be like make more sense as a top tag team, I feel like they could have been a good tag team like in a longer range. Because I do think they're I think they were they were they they were, they did some good stuff together. I I enjoyed this match. It wasn't like a great match or anything. But given that it was, it got a decent amount of time, and it was, um, it was just, it was solidly worked, and I thought it really kept the crowd. Which I, you know, a match this thrown together with tag team champions that had the reputation of not being that over, it could have easily not gotten over, and I think it did. 
Um, one part early that I enjoyed was um, Milano and Mama Luke were squaring off, and Cabana yells, "Out wrestle him, Milano!" And I thought that was pretty good advice for a, a wrestling match. <laughs> I to tell him to to out wrestle his his opponent. I think that's I think that's actually pretty smart to to, to try to tell him to do. Um, there was one point early in the match when they were like on the mat. And you could hear the crowd chanting, sit the fuck down. And I was thinking as I watched this, like, oh, I know why they said that. <laughs> I, I experienced wanting people to sit down, too, um, during that match. Um, uh, Gabe also points out at different points that Cabana is much more serious here, like not cracking smiles and like that he's been changed by the homicide feud. And it is true. Like, you know, he does some of his like, you know, wacky wrestling stuff, but he's not joking around. You know, he's not like, Oh, look up there. And then, you know, does, you know, stuff like that. He's, he's, yeah. he's wrestling seriously. And I thought he did a good job with it. Uh, Milano and, and, and Cabana do this thing where they lift up Sal by opposite legs and spread them, like splitting him apart as they show him off to each side of the ring, which was a fairly clever tag team spot. Um, and then Mama Luke breaks that up by hitting a missile drop kick to the backs of both Milano and Cabana. I like that. Um, I so they, so they work on Renara for a while, and they get the uh, the hot tag to Tony, even though the crowd isn't that hot for it. But I thought Mama Luke does a good job. He uh, does some does some hot moves, some cool pinning combos. Um, he does like this horse collar stretch muffler thing on Milano, where he gets his, but then Milano gets his hand on the bottom rope, and now they they work over Milano's leg for a while and cut off the ring, and they get some you know they they do some I think they do some cool double teams in near falls. And and finally, they get um, the hot tag to Cabana, and the crowd is pretty hot for that. So you could tell they want a title change. He's um, and I really like Cabana's title change. I mean, not, not title change, hot tag a lot because for two reasons. And maybe you can guess what one of them is. Um, so he does a bunch of slow, like Dusty Road style elbows and ducks double clothesline and hits a quebrada. But the number one reason why I like Cabana's hot tag. You might be able to guess because you know what I hate about Ring of Honor hot tags. Do you think you can guess? He, uh, do, he doesn't do the thing that I hate about Ring of Honor hot tags. He doesn't immediately tag back out again? Exactly. He, like, actually wrestles for a while. Like, and What a low bar to clear. But, yeah, he absolutely does not do that. Yes. and it, But it's a, yeah, it is a low bar. But I really liked it for that reason. Um and then they start hitting their big spots. Mama Luke does a bridging German suplex, but Sinclair won't count because he's not legal. Renaro does that snappy run-up moonsault thing that he does, which I like. Um, Milano does this cartwheel into the leaping clothesline, which I always like. Um, once Milano does get in, after a reasonable length of time, he does the <laughs> um, Armani shoe exchange. Mama Luke breaks up the pin. Um, and then they do that spike DDT thing, which... Felt out of nowhere, but it was a really cool finishing move. And I don't know. I, I thought this was a, a good, hard-hitting match. Like, a good match. I'm not saying great, but, like, a solidly good match and better than I expected in terms of heat and uh, intensity. Um, the crowd definitely booed the finish. I will say that because they wanted the title change. But after, yeah. after they do applaud once everyone starts shaking hands. And Mamaluke even gave Milano the Italian flag after the match, so that was pretty heartwarming, too. Yeah, I, I agree with your thoughts on this match. Um, it's certainly not like a show stealer or something you have to go out of your way to see. But I would say like this is outright just a good wrestling match. Like not even like you know above average or you know kind of entertaining. This is just outright a good piece of wrestling for 15 minutes. And I guess it shouldn't be that surprising because I think all these guys have talent. Uh, the one that I would disagree on is well, I thought everyone did fine. Like 
you know, no one was bad in this match. I actually was more impressed with Colt and Milano. Like, I just one of those matches where I really appreciate both of them. I, Milano, in particular, I've just been really impressed in all his Ring of Honor performances. And, um, well, I guess the Claudio match wasn't that special. But even that, I thought he did some good individual work within it. Um, they had Claudio and, uh, I mean, not Claudio, <laughs> Colt and Milano had like a surprising number of like double teams and interactions together for a team that, at least to my knowledge, had never worked anywhere together before. Like, even like little things, like you mentioned, like the big hanging double leg stretch. I liked even just little stuff, like at one point, um, Milano poses after doing a drop kick and Colt fixes his hair for him. Like, just stuff like that. It's just like, oh, they already have like this little bit of chemistry and a stick. Yeah, yeah, and, and I really, uh, I really enjoyed that. Um, I thought this match was was the most fun when it was uh, Colt and Milano on offense, but luckily they were on offense quite a bit. There was a hot when um Mamaluke came in at one point. I do feel like there was like a, a sequence there where he came in where he and Colt were just like not on the same page for a little bit. You can just see like they're both kind of waiting for someone to. Yeah, it's almost like the equivalent of when you're ever like in an aisle way at a supermarket or something, and like you're like. You go, no, 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 you go, you go, and you kind of keep stepping on each other's toes. It was kind of like they both kind of didn't know what the other wanted to do. But overall, good match, and I did kind of feel bad. Like, I, I still don't know if, like, um, I feel like Mamaluke and Renaro didn't have a lot of chemistry with each other as a team. Maybe they could have developed that over time. But I do think they are both talented wrestlers. So I agree with you, like, in a way, it's a shame that they got thrown together and like the rain is almost over and it's another, you know, we've seen this a few times in ring of honor where an act that isn't working. Sometimes like their best performance comes right before they're given up on. And this was like maybe their best match together. I mean, yeah. And I think that's not, that's not just an ROH thing. I think that's wrestling yeah. in general. They, that happens. But like to show you like how they're still like, you know, they're breaking, they're still trying to the few, they've been the tag team champions for a few shows and they're still trying to figure out like, what's a good tag team finisher? Cause this is like a completely new one for them. So like they were still trying to figure out fundamental parts of being a tag team and their reign as the champs was almost over. I wonder if that but, double electric chair thing, maybe this felt too dangerous for people and that's why they stopped doing it. I don't know. Cause that was a good finisher. I think they hit it the one time and then the second time they botched it. So I wonder if after the second time they said, well, like we just can't do this if we can't like hit it good every time. Yeah, I, I don't know how difficult that move is to do, but obviously they did not even attempt it in this match. They they broke out something new. Um, yeah, so good match. And, and yeah, like you mentioned, I felt kind of bad that even though Renaro and Mamaluke were not heels, like by the end of the match, it was clear that they wanted Colt and Milano, a team that had never teamed together before, half of it being a guy that only wrestled a handful of times in Ring of Honor. They were clearly the team that like the fans wanted to win, and I felt kind of bad, but... Um, yeah, the fans will get their wish very shortly. Uh, we cut to Matt Seidel backstage. Matt recounts his history in Ring of Honor, how he started with a tag team called the Air Devils. And after only one match together, the embassy jumped him before he could even get started in Ring of Honor. He says, tonight, Generation X proves that they're the future. I actually did like that they kind of tied that in. Like, they reminded you, oh, yeah, like, the embassy, even though Fast Eddie, the guy who turned on him, is no longer a member of the embassy. He's just disappeared off the face of the earth. Um, they, they, you know, they go to the effort of reminding you, like, technically, you know, Matt Seidel has his own grudge against these guys. And then um, we get an on-screen graphic that says, we tried to get comments from Abyss. Our cameraman ended up in the hospital. There will be no comments from Abyss, which I thought was very cute. Yeah, that's exactly what I wrote. Cute. 
Yeah. And um, next up, we have the Ring of Honor World Title Match. Brian Danielson successfully defends the title, defeating Rocky Romero, who is escorted to the ring by Julie Smokes and Ricky Reyes, via submission in 15 minutes, 26 seconds, when he made him tap to a single-leg Boston Crab. Um. Matt, this is the match that was. This was the match that was also on Dynamite, which is uh, no, just bonkers, bonkers. Yeah, and it's funny because um, Matt, this is one of those matches. I'm gonna be, re- I'm gonna, I'm going first on this one, but I'm gonna be really interested in hearing what you think about this match because this is one of those matches where I liked it a lot more than I saw online reviews liked it. Like a lot of online reviews are giving this like two and a half, like under three stars. I would give this. I have to give this a star rate. I would say it just squeaks into four stars. I thought this was outright great. I really enjoy this. I think actually, not to kind of tip my hand too much, I think this is my match of the show actually, um, which people might not expect just like looking at the card on paper. Um, part of me wonders though if I appreciate this match more just because we've been rewatching every Danielson match in Ring of Honor in order because there are sometimes I feel like we or especially me I like or dislike matches more than I would if I just dropped in cold, depending on the context of, oh, I've seen this so much lately, or, oh, this really builds nicely off of something. And what I really liked about this match is how different it is from every other of the Danielson title defenses so far. Like, instead of a 30-plus minute epic, which almost all of his title defenses have been, this is just a, a very tight 15. Instead of Danielson kind of bullying and dominating, almost kind of eating up his opponent, it's way more 50-50 here. Romero is just as big of a dick to Danielson as Danielson is to him, and that's a lot of the fun of this. It's like they're just being kind of dicks. Even stylistically, like, the match is different than a lot of Ring of Honor matches where it's mostly, like, strikes, a lot of kicks and submissions, um, to the point where it's so kick and submission-based that when Romero just hits a couple of his standard signature moves near the end of the match, which um, is springboard dropkick and a tiger suplex, they actually felt big to me just because I was like, whoa, I didn't expect to see wrestling moves in this grappling and, and this MMA match. And I mean, it wasn't really MMA thing, but it just they popped more because of that. Um there, and there's just so many cool little unique touches where there's just little things that you don't see in every match. Like Romero actually popping out of Danielson's surfboard. You don't see that often. Danielson using a lot of open hand slaps, which turned into a big slap war late in the match. Danielson actually doing foot stomps. You know, like little things you don't see in a lot of Ring of Honor matches. Um, even just the way Bryant and Rocky sell while in standard submissions, I thought was just on an extra good level. They sold it way bigger than you normally would see, like, standard submissions being sold in a match. Um, of recent Danielson matches, I've said they were all great, and they have been. Some really great. But a lot of them, if you wanted to nitpick, felt like he could have had them with anyone decently talented because he controlled them so much and kind of dominated them so much. This match, you know, I wouldn't put this above the Roderick Strong matches, but what this match has for it is it feels like a real collaboration between him and Romero, like something that only they could do in this combination, these two guys together, like it's very much a product of both of them. And I think that's some of the magic of wrestling where you throw two wrestlers together and you kind of see what unique match comes from just their personalities and styles hitting. And I, again, not an outright, like it's not going to be on my match of the year list, but four stars. I thought this was great. Yeah. I mean, my only disappointment with this match is that you took everything that I wanted to say. Um, yeah, like, I, you know, I was, you know, vacillating to between like three and three quarters and four stars. I think four is perfectly sensible for this match. And yeah, what I liked, what I liked about it is that Danielson did not dominate the way he did in the other matches. He really, like, clearly respected Romero a lot. Not that he didn't respect, like, Chris Sabin or, or, 
or Roderick Strong, obviously he did, or Chris Daniels, but like this is a different kind of thing. Like clearly it's like, oh, Rocky is a guy that I know real well and will do something special with. And they, I think he decided to do something special. He wore the black trunks and the kick pads, which he had not been wearing during this title run, clearly to show like, okay, this is like my MMA style match or whatever it is, you know? Um, and he does do something different. They do a lot of kicks and headbutts and, and all that stuff on the ground. And I actually like the uh, the point that Gabe made to make this make sense, which is that he says Rocky made Danielson tap many times at the New Japan Dojo. And then he also mentions that, you know, Rocky got this match because he won the trios tournament and they all got, you know, certain matches that they could have. Um, and Rocky won the trios tournament. What, what, how many months earlier was that? Nine months earlier, 10 months earlier, something like that. Nine months, I guess, eight months. Um, it was early, fairly was early Mar- on in the year. Yeah, yeah, it was March. Yeah. So, um, I guess that's, I guess that's and this nine, is December. Yeah. So nine months earlier, right? Yeah. So, um, but so, but Gabe actually makes it make sense that it took so long um, because he says like, "Oh, Rocky waited until Danielson was the champion because he knows Danielson; he might have his number." And like that made the matchup make sense, even though Romero has always been way lower on the totem pole than Danielson is. Right? Rocky was yeah. never presented as a world title threat. Um, and I don't think this crowd took him as a real threat to the world title, but they did take him enough that they could suspend disbelief and allow themselves to buy into the match. The match never gets to the point where there are like dramatic near falls or anything like that, right? Yeah. So it was a good in a different way. They're just doing a lot of cool stuff and it's fast paced and it's, you know, I w- it really sucked that when I was there live, I really couldn't enjoy it because so much of the stuff was on the mat and I really couldn't see it. But seeing it back on tape, like all action, good heat, um, and just, you know, different. And, and, you know, they got to show, they both got to show personalities. And I have to say, I like Rocky Romero as himself a lot better than I like him as Black Tiger. Um, yeah. I feel like he, he, I would have, you know, I mean, he, he will come back, you know, to ROH, especially in 07. But, you know, I would have liked to see more of this version of Rocky Romero during this era. Um, I'm really glad they eventually got to have a match on national television because I never would have guessed that. But, yeah, yeah uh, and um, yeah. I I do think like watching this match. I mean, he's not quite where he would end up being, but you have, I would imagine you agree. Like he's uh, one year later, he's showing a bunch more charisma than he did in his early Havana Pitbulls Ring of Honor performances, right? Like, yeah, I mean, I think I mean I I mean you were obviously the like the lowest of the low on the yeah. Havana Pitbulls stuff in ROH, yeah. but but yes, I think together they showed less than they do individually, honestly. And and yeah, Romero, honestly, this is. Romero obviously shows a lot more personality, but yeah, no, they, this was the first time you really saw that in ROH. Yeah, this is a good night for both of them. Yeah, that's that's actually a, yep. didn't even think about combining them that way. And just to, um, just just to note, Romero did have Ricky Reyes and Julius Smokes in his corner. Yeah. Um. So uh, the other thing you mentioned that I think is a really good point. I'm glad you brought up was. I think this match, yeah, with the Gabe's commentary, it's another great example of something we've talked about before, which is Ring of Honor, like going the extra mile to like pick up threads and dot every eye and, and or not every eye, but a lot of, a lot more than a lot of promotions because yeah, technically this match happens because the whole idea of the trios tournament is that each of the three people on the winning team, which would have been Homicide, Reyes, and Romero, get a uh, basically a chance to wrestle any match they want. It's not quite money in the bank where it can't be impromptu, but they basically got, got to book themselves. And so Homicide used his, I believe, to wrestle Aries at the Best of the American, I mean, Best of the American Super Juniors show yeah. for the world title. Uh, I believe Reyes used his to team with Homicide to wrestle uh, 
Mamaluke and Renaro for the tag titles. And this is Romero's. And because Romero had new Japan commands, he hasn't wrestled a lot this year for Ring of Honor. And I feel like a lot of promotions, they would just have forgotten that. But Ring of Honor, actually, you know, they go out of their way to remember that. And I think they book it on a show because they know Romero and um, Danielson could not, like, draw on a show as one of the top matches. But they picked the show with, with Homicide and Carino and the Big Steel Cage Warfare match. I feel like where you can have the world title match kind of be a step down in terms of, like, sexiness. Yeah, and it, it, is we- it is weird that it was, like, a total mid-card match, though. Like, in the smack dab in the middle of the show, not even, like, second from the top. That is a little bit weird. Yeah, even Joe and and Lethal is above it for no title. Yeah, um, but I, I guess that would. But it, 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 I did like, like you said, the gate commentary. I thought did a good job of trying to like rationalize everything and, and give um, Romero a little bit of juice. And I and they even went. This is so adorable. I felt like during the intro, they showed a clip of Rocky Romero being like the first person to attack Danielson at the end of Weekend of Thunder two, uh, night two. Uh, you know where um the Pitbulls turn on Danielson after the uh, Liger and Joe versus uh, Danielson and um, Loki match. And I just love that they went back that to a two-year-old match, basic or a long, a very old, an old match. Yeah, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was a year old. Yeah. Yeah. A year old. Yeah. Um, just to get that, just to, I mean, it's, it's like, no one's remembering that. No, it's not a major plot point, but pro- they pro- probably that. two years on our timeline, by the way. Yeah, 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 exactly. That's why I get confused. But just the fact that someone went in, in production and said, you know what? We'll get that clip. Like, yes, I, I like that. I like that little bit of detail there. Um, and then also during the intros, Brian, this time, you know, he has this new gimmick where he's getting Bobby Cruz to announce different things for him. He whispers in his ear before he announces Danielson in the ring introductions. And this time he got Bobby to announce him as the only real world champion in wrestling today. I forget who the other champions were in wrestling at this time. So I don't know how much of a sick burn this was, but uh, that was a cute moment, too. So after the match. Uh, Brian Danielson celebrates in the ring when Lance Storm appears in the entranceway, starting to walk to the ring. He gets no music. And in fact, it feels like it takes the crowd a little bit of time to realize who he is. Uh, and you add in context that some of the fans couldn't even see what was going on. That also adds to it because when you watch him come out, he does not get that immediate pop. He, he, it's like he, as he starts walking to the ring and more and more people see him, then he gets the big pop, like, oh shit, it's Lance Storm. And it becomes a huge pop. And, yeah. and I realize, like, wow, Ring of Honor fans love the Impact players. <laughs> yeah, like, it's not quite a just incredible pop, but could you, Matt? It's close, no, no, but, but it is close. Cause I, when I, when I was first watching, I was like, this isn't a just incredible pop. But then as it grew, I'm like, oh, you know what? It's not that far off. You know, they're probably as weird as the sounds the people that were, have not been following every Ring of Honor show and following like the saga of Justin Incredible's incredible spot for his debut in Ring of Honor. But there probably was, I don't know if the, uh, money is the right word, but probably would have been something worth like booking one impact players match in Ring of Honor. Yeah, no, they, both, for, like, they both got huge, huge pops, like two of the bigger pops in ROH history, I would say, for their entrances. Yeah. Um, so Lance comes to the ring. He gets a nice reaction, a very nice reaction once everyone realizes, hey, this is Lance Storm. He's here. Um, Lance grabs the mic and does the old, if I could, can be serious for a minute. Gets a nice pop for that. Lance says he's here out of respect. He respects Brian Danielson. He saw the match where Brian won the title, and he wanted to see Brian work live. And then 
though his mic isn't working particularly well. And then he just keeps dead. He deadpans. He goes, I want this microphone to work. Um, Storm then says he retired when uh, he, when he, when he retired, he was asked why, and he's never really given a straight answer. But the reason is he wasn't allowed to have the kind of matches that he was proud of anymore. So he knows where Danielson's coming from with all his recent comments about corporate wrestling, stuff like that. Lance goes, then at ECW one night stand, I was allowed to go out having one more match on my terms, you know, with my old partner, my old friend, Chris Jericho. It was a match I could be proud of. And he says, not once since that match have I reconsidered my decision or reconsidered returning since then. But watching Danielson tonight reminded him why he loves this business. And if he ever decides to give up that one last match that he had with Jericho for another match, it would be with a guy like Brian Danielson. Lance then extends his hand for a handshake as the fans chant one more match. Uh, at this point, Brian snatches the mic away. He says he doesn't do anything on the other people's terms, not these jackass fans, and he doesn't let corporate America tell him to wrestle how to wrestle like some people he knows. Um, Brian says he won't shake Lance's hand on his terms, but as a professional wrestler who respects those that who came before him, who respects the contributions Lance made, Brian credits Lance for opening the door for smaller guys like himself. Brian wants to shake Lance's hands on his own terms, getting the fans to cheer Lance first. Brian then thanks Lance, and then they shake hands. Storm poses on the turnbuckles as an ad for Ring of Honor's new Lance Storm shoot interview scrolls across the screen. Brian leaves to let Lance receive his ovation. And he gets another one more match chant. Um, you know, the last storm stuff was good. I, one thing I thought was, I thought the Brian Daniels thing was kind of weird because it felt like we've talked about before how in Ring of Honor so often every character has like a one sentence, like character development. Like the Carnage crew was, we hate our wives and our kids and we like fighting and they would just repeat that ad nauseum. And I felt like the, the line Danielson was given to deliver at this point in ring of honor was always, I don't let anyone tell me how I wrestle. And I don't let corporate America tell me how to wrestle. And so to really emphasize it, it felt like they told him, like, let Lance know, you know, you're not going to do things on his terms. But then Brian Danielson's terms here for having a handshake with Lance Storm was basically, I want to tell you some more about how cool you are. And then we can shake on my terms. Well, it was well, very well, like. No, well, well, the term was that he wanted everyone to stand up and clap for him to do it. That, that was that was what it was. It was weird, though, because he's still doing that kind of heelish, like, this era of Danielson energy, but it was a very nice thing he did. Like, it was, yeah. I, I, I thought that was kind of weird. But it was weird, but I think they, they knew that. Like, I think it was like they were teasing it. They were teasing tension, but then he was like, actually, I'm going to honor and respect you. Like, but I'm still a dick. You know You know what I mean? Like, that's why Danielson's not a total heel, because he's he's a jerk. But he still has honor, I guess, is like yeah. the idea, which is what they were trying to go with for CM Punk in his early run, right? That he's still honorable. But I was like, but CM Punk cheats all the time in this, in that era. So, but for Danielson, it actually makes sense that like he is a jerk with honor. So, um, Dave Meltzer, I thought this was interesting to observe. I want your thought on this, Matt. Um, Dave wrote, Lance Storm legitimately was talked with about doing a match with Brian Danielson, but Storm said he considers himself retired, so at this point there are no plans. Now, I guess there is a possible universe where at this, on this day, because, uh, again, the point of Lance Storm being at this, in this area was he was doing a straight shooting shoot interview, as our Eric told us in the email. They filmed it actually after the show, and Lance sat, sat motionless, emotionless. Any any kind of list you can think of, waiting for it to be to happen. But 
it is, I guess it's possible they tried to talk to him and he didn't want to commit at this moment. But knowing that they actually wrestled just a few months later in Ring of Honor and they, they don't like tease it in the sense of there's no angle. You know, Dan, Lance doesn't even say, I want to wrestle you if I come out of retirement. He says, someone like you. But I mean, I, I really do think probably someone was just kayfaving Dave here because I mean, if you actually see this segment, it definitely feels like they're pushing towards Danielson Storm. I actually believe the story. Um, I I, cause I remember just hearing Storm kind of say in the years later, like just seeing Danielson and like seeing him in person is sort of like what got him interested in doing the match. And this is the moment that he did it. So I don't think he's going to see the match and like decide right then and there. I think they were trying to yeah. sell him on it. And that's why Storm was like, you know, maybe I'll do it. But like, I, I think like the idea was in his mind. I'm sure the seed was already planted, but I do not believe the match was on the books yet. And certainly not where the match would happen. Um, I, I, that's, I actually do believe that. I, I think maybe there's a little bit, it was a little bit undersold in the observer in the sense of like, they're trying to get him to do a match soon, you know, with Danielson. I think that's true. And they were acting more like Storm is like, eh, you know, forget it. I'm retired. But, and they were, they were clearly like kind of working him to get, to get, to get to that point. Yeah. I believe that it was not a settled thing yet. I do believe that. I mean, look at Steve Austin at WrestleMania this year. Like, he didn't announce that he was going to have a match, which makes no sense. But I guess yeah. the idea is like he just wasn't sure yet and didn't want to false advertise, right? So yeah. um, I'm sure that's what was, what was going on with Storm, too. And um, for those who are thinking, well, it, well, I mean, clearly this had to have been a, a – it, it, like as a point in your favor, Matt, if you were thinking like clearly like the fact that Lance shows up, this had to be a setup. Well, no, because Ring of Honor, we've seen this multiple times now. They would like bring a guy in just to do a shoot interview on the day of a Ring of Honor show. And then they would also go, well, hey, while you're doing a shoot interview, would you like to show up and just make an appearance? And they should, have, they, should have done, they should have done Brian Danielson versus Bill Watts. I was about to say with the Bill Watts. But yeah. So like, you know, it could have been just literally like, hey. We're booking you for a shoot interview, and would you like to come out? You know, and put over our champ. And this sure and went better that, than uh, Shane Douglas's appearance in New York did. Yeah, but let's face it, man, it would have been great if Lance Storm had to answer a cell phone during this. <laughs> um, but uh, Danny also had a comment about the match itself. He didn't see the match at this point, but he wrote. Uh, Brian Danielson kept the Ring of Honor title over Rocky Romero without the Black Tiger mask, using the half crab in 15 minutes, 30 seconds. And uh, Dave wrote, actually, I like the idea of them doing a sub-20 minute title match because it was becoming like the All Japan pattern in the 90s where everyone knows the title match has to go 25 minutes or more. And so no moves get over until the 20 minute mark. The storyline seems to be that Danielson uses a new submission hold to win every time out. But because of that, the moves aren't signature moves, so the people aren't primed for it as the finish. And I think Dave has a good point about, like, it is good to vary your match times because you have Danielson. I mean, I think his shortest match as champion before this was probably the Carino match, which I think was still significantly over 20 minutes. Unless you, count, was, unless you count the Azrael match. Oh, yeah, the Azrael match, of course. Yeah, you're right. But other than that, like, you know, even the t- match he won with, with um, Gibson, very long. The, the uh, Daniels ma- match was half an hour. The... Roderick Strong matches were both over half an hour. The Saban match was, I think, approaching half an hour. Like, so yeah, that, again, that's one of the reasons I found this match refreshing was if you just watch, if you haven't been watching all of Danielson's things, you're like, oh, Danielson and Rocky Romero had a 15 minute match. Like, what's the big deal? But it is refreshing in the sense of it's a switch from what you've been seeing if you've been watching every show. 
Yeah, and it's another, um, and it's also funny that he's mentioning another thing that he could have written today about Brian Danielson. Exactly. Yeah, he's winning with different. But the difference is, I think no one would criticize it now because I think years later, it's like, oh, this is just really cool that he's doing this. No, no one's like, oh man, Danielson's not getting any of these moves over. You know. <laughs> oh, another thing I want to mention. This is the most important thing, Matt. The uh, great moment where um Danielson goes for a handshake. Romero spits in Danielson's hand, and then Danielson walks over yes. to a cameraman oh, that. yes, and great. wipes it on the cameraman. Yes. <laughs> you know, that's that, that, Matt, nothing else sells Brian Danielson as a tweener as that moment where he's not the one doing the spin in the hand, but he's also going to wipe it off on somebody else. That's the, a true tweener, Matt. That's the anti-Jimmy Miranda award. <laughs> You're literally spitting on the on the crew. If that guy, if, if Ray Water had the equivalent of a Jimmy Miranda reward, that'd be a story that guy could tell when he won the award. Like, yeah. I remember where I took one for the team. I Shane, Hagedor, Shane Hagedorn might correct me on this, but I'm pretty sure that camera guy's name is Jimmy. <laughs> I'm, I'm not joking. I know. It all comes full circle. So many and Jimmys we, in ROH. <laughs> um, cut to Jack Evans backstage. Would have been great if this was a Jimmy, like it's Jimmy Jacobs promo or something. Uh, Jack says... Ring of Honor has the audacity to put him, Jack Evans, in a cage. He doesn't know why Ring of Honor would do that to the embassy. He says a cage is his own and is his environment, and you do not put a pit bull in another pit bull's backyard and expect him to win. Which that's what those lines were like. It sounds until you think about like like interesting or profound. But it's like I don't know. I'm sure I could find like a pit bull that's like tougher than another pit bull, and even if it was in that other pit bull's backyard, like he could win. Like like that. If someone comes to my house. There are plenty of people that could beat me up in my own house. Like, Trevor, uh, my home field advantage is not that big of an advantage. Trevor, I don't, I don't want to hear you endorsing dog fighting. No, no, I'm against it. No. I, I'm going to take a stand on this one, Trevor. <laughs> the bold stand on this episode. Um, but you know, CM Punk did that same concept when he um, did his Joe versus Punk two promo, where he said, you know, when someone the bullies came to his house. He had he won the fight because he was in his own house. And yes, I I agree with you. Like I I would lose almost every fight in my own house. Yeah, like like there is not much I can do in my house that I can't do in your house in the context of a fight. Like, Unless I saw it coming and booby trapped it a la home alone. <laughs> then I feel like I would have the real advantage. I mean, the best advantage I have is I can run to the bathroom very quickly because I know where it is and lock myself in there. Like, that's my advantage in a fight. That's my home field advantage. What do you think of booby so, traps, though? That could be a fun <laughs> project. Uh, <laughs> a fun project. <laughs> I don't know, Trevor. Um, you have some people that want to come and beat you up. Um, no. You could probably uh, just booby trap the house. I think you should do it, it now. It, Preemptively booby trap your house. I, I think it's a good idea. It's been a weird three weeks. Um, Jack, so anyway, Jack is here to prove that he's a mainstay in Ring of Honor. Not, he, and, I, and that's about it for this promo. I wrote, not a great promo delivery from Jack, kind of fumbling for his words briefly at a couple points. And the seriousness doesn't fit well on him here. But, you know, again, I appreciate that everyone gets their promo time in the, to set up like how big the main event is. And then next, we get, I think, the guy who did the best on these promos on this night uh, from these, these two factions, and that's Alex Shelley. Alex Shelley just, you know, a short, nothing special, but 
fine promo here where he goes, um, he says, this began, all began a year ago when Austin Aries usurped him as leader of Generation Next. Shelly says, you bring your diet, Generation Next, your watered-down group, because it's not the same without Alex Shelley. Shelly says, he's going to personally make sure that the personal Jesus is crucified tonight. Thank God he did not say this on, like, Easter weekend, Matt. <laughs> if we've learned anything from the time we're calling the show, people do not like your religious symbolism during the the week of Easter, now I ain't, I ain't a, saying shit about this one. Yeah, <laughs> you know what? Even I, if you know, even I have not made a tweet about that. Even I have. I've learned my lesson. Yes. I, I, you know what? But um, I'm skeptical that you've learned your lesson. But hey, a, a short. I've learned some lessons, not all the lessons. Yes. But uh, that brings us to Jay Lethal defeats Samoa Joe via pinfall in 20 minutes 42 seconds after he hit the dragon suplex. Uh, Matt, you know, this is a big storyline development, at least. This is, you know, this is not the first time we've seen Lethal and uh, Joe wrestle, but the, the Jay Lethal done turned heel in this match, Matt. What do you think about everything related to this match? I think this match is fairly famously disappointing, and um, I think I can explain at least part of the reasons why. Um, the first little bit of it is just a lot of, like, feeling out process and... You know, Joe hits some of his signature combos, but they're not doing anything super dynamic. At one point, very early in the match, um, Joe does this pretty cool stretch where he lifts Lethal off the mat while grabbing his arm, almost like embarrassing Lethal early. Um, there's He does that other thing where he just like, the thing where he does where he walks away when someone goes for a crossbody off the ropes and he just like casually walks away, which again, embarrasses Lethal. Um, but, you know, once the, the um, once the heel turn comes... Which is basically um, lethal. So, like Joe does the face wash, and he's really aggressive with the face wash. Like he does it a lot, and like, and then so lethal moves out of the way of the running boot, and then he pulls Joe out of the out of the ring, wraps his leg around the ring post, and then he's like, he does this thing where he's like, "Oh, I shouldn't have done that. That was too much," and he acts like he won't do it again. But then instead, he gets a chair and starts wailing away at Joe's knee with the chair. And then Gabe, of course, acts shocked, and then Lethal hits him more in the leg, like almost like Austin at WrestleMania 17 style, just like over and over and over again. And, you know, the crowd does get into it. They start chanting, fuck you, Lethal, fuck you, Lethal. But you might think, oh, so that's the end of the match. Lethal is disqualified, right? I mean, that's what makes sense right there, right? But instead, he beats the shit out of Joe's leg with a chair, and then the match just keeps going for a while. And then they just go for like back another in. seven minutes, I think. Yeah, they just like, go back in, and like Lethal just like beats on Joe's leg, and the crowd is just like quiet at that point because it's just like you have this big climactic heel turn, and it's just like then you just do more of a match, and Lethal's like working over. It's it's funny because like at one point Lethal dro- uh, dra- uh, drops Joe's leg over the bottom rope and like ties it up, and the ref counts till five for the rope break, and I'm like. So you're doing disqualifications, but not for the thing where you're beating the shit out of him with a chair. <laughs> That's, I mean, I know this has been a pet peeve of mine for a long time, but this is by far the most egregious example of this. Um, and, you know, Gabe is like, oh, Lethal's not sure of what he's doing. He's like, he's suddenly become possessed and like J- Lethal is kicking away at Joe's leg. And he's like, teach me, teacher. Where's my pure title? Like, so, you know, he's making it very clear why he's turned. <laughs> you know, there's not, not a lot of question about what was the motivation here. But I'm just like, why doesn't he just use the chair some more since apparently he's allowed to do it? And so the crowd is just confused. I feel like they get to this climactic moment and they should have just like either either had the disqualification there or waited until the last second for Lethal to turn and then win that way. Because 
it just they it just, they they belabor it and it, it just gets weird. Like there there is some cool stuff like Lethal doing the like Joe going for the Death Valley Driver, but his leg buckles. Lethal hits the the headbutt to the back of Joe's leg and turns it into a half crab. And, you know, Joe can't even run the rope. So there is good selling. You know, Joe buckles again on the muscle buster and then Lethal hits the dragon suplex and a good one for the win. So it's not like the match was bad. Like there was good stuff. But I think just the way they paced it, it was just a weirdly done heel turn. And I think they could, it could have been done much more effectively. And I do – I just really hate that they do the thing where you could just randomly beat the shit out of somebody with a chair and it – is not a problem at all, but you get counted for not breaking on a rope on the rope break. Like that's just too weird to me. I just can't get past that. Yeah. Um, it, it's funny because a lot of times I feel like we talk about like, Oh, this match didn't have a story and that's a negative. And sometimes this ma- a match doesn't have a story, but we l- really like the match because the moves are so cool. I feel like this is a match that has a story, but it's kind of like, the story isn't really well told and they don't really tell it for more than like a third of the match because I agree with basically everything you say. Like, um, there, there's, you know, a million ways to do a heel turn in a match, but I feel like a couple of the most standard ways are you could do kind of like the progressive burn where all during the match, like one guy's getting more frustrated with the other guy, like he's getting out wrestled or the other guy's kind of patronizing him and he finally just snaps. Or you can do like the shocking right at the very end, guy does one nefarious thing and immediately wins the match. And it's just like this huge shock. And as you were talked about, they kind of don't like, they do a tiny bit of the first part where like you, you mentioned the couple spots where like, you know, Joe at one point, like trying to get lethal up to his feet in kind of just like a, a normal way after a move, but like not very roughly and lethal kind of angrily shoves him away. Like, almost like he's being patronized and th- that stuff would have been neat if they did a lot of that and to set up a turn. But instead there's like no slow burn here. It's just like they're wrestling a very regular kind of nothing particularly special match. And then lethal lethal isn't like badly losing the match. Really? It's, it's back and forth. And then he just gets to a point where he's like, yeah, I'm going to use this chair and I'm going to start hitting it. And then at that point, from that point on, like you mentioned, instead of having like a shocking turn where Jay lethal uses a chair and immediately wins, we get, I, I think I counted it like seven minutes of a match where it's kind of interesting because it's Joe in a way you rarely see him where he's the underdog now and he's selling. And you mentioned all the spots where his leg gives out, but like it just goes on and on. And even there, lethal, he's, he's trying to be a heel, but it's very sporadic. Like most of the match, he's like most of the last seven minutes, he's still wrestling kind of emotionless, just regular with not a lot of like venom to him. He's working over the leg a bit. And then once in a while he'll remember like, Oh, I'm a heel. And he'll say something like you mentioned, like teach me teacher or, you know, remember the pure, you took my pure title, stuff like that. But really, you know, he doesn't have the emotional chops again to, at this point, he's only 20 to, to carry a moment like this. And the booking of this, I just feel like, you should have either built up to it more or made it very sudden right at the very end. Instead, you kind of get like the worst. You get neither of the good worlds there and going the chair thing. It, it did not bug me as much as it bothered you because I kind of feel like it's become unofficial ring of honor can, even though I think it's very stupid that just, if you use a foreign object outside the ring, somehow that's okay. Like, I feel like that's stupid, but I feel like we've seen that enough where, they feel it almost feels like, oh, if you don't use the chair in the ring, somehow that's okay. And it's dumb, but it happens. Um, 
the one thing I didn't like uh, about the well, one thing I didn't like about the chair thing I thought was funny, which was we've praised Gabe like we saw a few times on the show like the really the good parts of Gabe on commentary where he could really explain things and give insight. I think we saw like the old bad part of Gabe here, where at one point where where Lethal starts slamming Joe's leg into the ring post, Gabe like gets really like hot like oh uh, that had to be out of instinct. I don't think he meant to do that. Like he's trying to act like Lethal is crossing the line, just slamming Joe's leg into the ring post. Which is like a somewhat aggressive thing, but it's not particularly, I would say, heelish or over the line. But it's just because it's Gabe doing his classic telegraphing where he knows the next spot is lethal crossing the line. It's grabbing the chair. And I just thought it was one of those things, again, where you didn't need to sell him ramming a guy's leg into a turnbuckle. as like, oh, my God, it must have been an accident. Like, what? You know, when you accidentally slam someone's leg into a, into a turnbuckle. But yeah, it, it, it. I would say like you know, there's enough interesting stuff in this match to give it like it's a decent match. It's just very disappointing, and the story is very not optimally told. Not even close, I would say. And in the end, they, this doesn't really work out, right? Like Lethal's not long for Ring of Honor. Excuse me. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I mean, maybe it would have gotten over better if it was executed better i mean i do think it makes sense like logically like i don't think it's a bad idea to have lethal turn on joe at this point i think it is like a reasonably logical step for his character i just think you know so i'm not against the idea necessarily i just it just wasn't executed well you know it happens it happens sometimes so we actually have a note uh, from the observer about the reasoning behind that. Um, first off, Dave wrote based on the live report's strong match, which again, um, someone clearly who wrote a report liked it, but, uh, I think, yeah, I think our thoughts are kind of like the general consensus nowadays on this match. Um, Dave then continued, Lilo was given a tryout as a heel on some FIP shows and Gabe Sapolsky thought he was better that way. Plus felt they had taken the teacher protege thing with Joe about as far as they could, which, I mean, I can't argue with that reasoning. I, I kind of agree with the Joe J project. Unless you were, unless you were going to make them tag champs, which they clearly weren't. Like I do feel like that th- that story had kind of probably gone as long as it could. Um, Did Lethal and Joe ever feud or do anything in, in TNA together? I'm not sure. Because if not, um, if not, it's pretty crazy that they're just like, all right, well, here's the next phase of the feud. Seventeen years later, in AEW <laughs> as the main it, event. <laughs> It, it, it's also like there were like this match. I will say, just speaking of the match quality, like I don't think it was a very good match, but there was enough where I would almost give this like three stars. But there was even in the wrestling part of this match, there was some a couple off moments. Like there's a weird spot where Jay does a side Russian leg sweep, but he turns forward as Joe drops, and it looks so awful but so weird that I can't decide if it was meant to be a move that was purposely looked like that or something weird happened. And like that's never a good sign where I can't tell if something was done on purpose or not. And then also I felt bad for them because um, a spot near the end of the match would have been really cool. It would have been the spot of the match where uh, uh, Jay Lethal springboards off the top rope and Joe is supposed to catch him and do like the urinagi that he usually does when a guy runs at him in the corner and he just grabs him with the one arm and like slams him down. And Jay was supposed to uh, grab like Jay out of midair as he springboards and does it. And it's a very um, – ambitious spot to try and they do not pull it off like jay they can't kind of sync up on the arm and so joe makes up for you could you could always 
it's always weird when you see this in wrestling where you can tell when a move gets botched where the guy's like, I'm just going to kill this guy to make up for it. Because Joe immediately just grabs Lethal and like drops him with like a brutal looking German suplex. I felt so bad for Jay Lethal because that probably was not in the plans. And Joe was probably like, fuck, you know, we got to do something. And so he just German suplexes the hell out of Jay Lethal. So I felt bad for him there. But yeah, sometimes things just don't work out. But after the match, uh, Lethal shakes Joe's limp hand as Joe is still selling on the on the mat. He goes to leave, but then he thinks better of it. He turns around and he starts kicking and stomping Joe's legs some more. And like you said earlier, I, I guess we should emphasize too: as badly as as not wet greatly as this angle turned out, and how I don't we don't think it was turned out really great. Like you mentioned, like. When Lethal initially turns in this match, it does get a good reaction. Like, I think people were receptive to the idea of Jay Lethal turning heel on Samoa Joe. It's just the execution doesn't work out great, and Jay goes to TNA fall time and all of that. And then we finally, as Jay leaves, we get, like, a, a moment of Joe really staring super angrily as he starts to recover in the ring and just, like, letting you know it's on. And that's that. So that brings us to the semi-main event. A rematch of the 2003 consensus pick for Through the Years' Ring of Honor match of the year for 2003. Steve Carino defeated Homicide, scored to the ring by Julius Smokes, via pinfall in 16 minutes, 28 seconds, after a masked Colt Cabana hit Homicide with a lariat. So, uh, first off, before the match, Carino's personal ring announcer, Brian Regal, rings a long, reads a long intro. This time, instead of like a list like he's normally been doing, it's a poem. Um, I could not work out most of it. The God bless um the people at an honorable mention podcast. They Jeff Schwartz transcribed and reads off the entire thing. So if you want to hear the poem, listen to them. There are some funny lines. I do not think it was one of the best Steve Carino written introductions. That is also kind of no. weird to see it something that's so humorous before like a hated feud. It was one of my but, least favorite Carino ring introductions. And I'm, I'm just for just so you know, I didn't hear. I couldn't hear what he was saying live. I was like, what the hell is he saying? And then I really, like you, I, even on video, I really couldn't make out what he was saying. But the lines that I did hear were, um, not, in my opinion, not very good. <laughs> yeah, I could make out a line here. They're like, the Notorious 187 in a couple of years will be mopping up a 7-Eleven. Like, that, those are the kind of lines you're getting in this poem. Yeah, not, not, um, not very good. It was called The War Round 4, though. Yeah, which I do like the trying to make it seem epic, like that part of it, like like an Ali Frazier type thing. Also, um, also, it made clear that they were going to be heels in this match because you know Homicide's usually the heel, and Carino wasn't a heel when he teamed with Cabana a few months earlier. But now he's going to be a heel because they're in New York and they're going to lean into Homicide being the babyface. Yeah, and the crowd actually chants "shut," not "shut the fuck up," but "boring" during this intro. So maybe some of yes. the crowd agreed too. Yes. Um. So. This is one of those matches, Matt. Oh, and I should also say, there's a before I describe the match because there's a whole sorts of plunder and stuff. Gabe does explain this match that Jim Cornette has said in this match that because of the hated feud and all that, the heat filled hate filled feud that like Jim Cornette has instructed the referee to let everything go except outside interference, which happens multiple times in this match, which we we'll get to. <laughs> but um, so this is one of those matches, Matt. It's I, I've talked about this before. It's hard. I, I hate talking about these kind of matches because I'm going to give thoughts about how this match work. This match is as a piece of entertainment because that's all we can do as fans and people that do a podcast that review shows. But I always feel bad when a big injury happens early on in a match and clearly affects the match. And so, cause it's like weird to criticize something where someone's working through something r- really serious 
you know, it's not on them. And, um, but I do feel in this match, there's so much of, it seemed like they had a lot of pre-planned stuff that happened. And I feel like watching this match, I realized this match was hurt by the injury, which I'll describe in a second. But I also feel like watching this match, I got the impression that if they did the match that they had planned, I still don't think I would have loved, wouldn't have loved this match. But, um, so basically the story of this match is very early on within the first opening minutes. Um, Korean, uh, Homicide does his Tope Kun heel. You know, the movie we've seen him do a million times, one of the great Tope Kun heels in the biz. And he flies high. Like, um, I would say the difference, like, there's some controversy. We'll read, I have a bunch of notes on afterwards, but, um, Homicide feels that Carino did not protect him at certain moments in this match, including this. He kind of blames him for this. I would say I watched this a few times, like the goddamn Sapruder film, because of those comments. I would say on this Tope Kahilo, I would not blame Carino. Because if you look, Carino is standing fairly close to the ring. And maybe closer than opponents usually do. And Homicide, like, comes in high and flies basically over Creel's head. And you can see Creel gets one arm. He's trying to get a hand on, on Homicide. But Homicide's just above his head. And instead of, like, really hitting Creel on, like, the head and chest, he flies over. And he turns enough that he lands on his shoulder and completely fucks up his shoulder. Like, later in the match, we see um a close-up of his shoulder, and it seems to be, like, pointing out at a weird angle with weird divots in the skin and the commentary is like, Oh my God. And I watched even a shoot interview that homicide did in like, um, early 2007. And he, even then at one point talking about this points to his shoulder, like, look how bad my shoulder is still. Like he's still saying my shoulder's fucked up. You know, this was an injury that I think would haunt homicide for basically the rest of his career to this day. And probably in some respects. And I, I believe they said it was an injury where it was like, a a badly bruised like AC joint or something like it wasn't, it, it was really badly hurt, but not, not necessarily torn. So anyway, the whole rest of this match, homicide is clearly really hurt. He is constantly checking on his shoulder. He is at points. Some points he's using both arms. At some points he's just using the one good arm. He's letting the other one kind of hang limply. He's really clearly in pain. Uh, there is a couple moments where Carino stops homicide's shoulder and you can see Homicide get mad and actually talk to him and swear him, like, don't fucking do that to me. Like, don't hit my shoulder. Um, you know, it, it, so it, I feel bad. It, the, the, he wrestles almost this entire match gutting this out. And I feel bad for that. But then there is the rest of the match. And they have a lot of pre-planned spots. And so what I would say about this match is part of, I think, a big part of what makes the Bitter Friend Stiffer's Enemies match, Stiffer Enemies match so great that made it our 2003 match of the year is that, it had some weapons in it and some gore, but it didn't feel like that was the star of the show. I felt like their Creo and Homicide's hate was the story and the props was like a supporting player. Here it feels like the props and the, and the booking is like the star of the show and the hate is secondary. Even though there is hate in this, we get like a barbed wire chair, a regular chairs, a table spot, a barricade spot, a fork spots, fork to the ear on Creole or Creole blades or gets cut from the ear. Um, multiple run-ins from Cole Cabana, a ref bump, the ref blades. Like this match is all bells and whistles to the point where it starts feeling more like a more violent, like attitude era, WWF pay-per-view main event during like the Russo era than like a really good hate filled, feud match and then another thing i would say that the better bitter friends in a match was really good about was its pace they had this really great methodical pace where 
it was methodical enough that everything really had weight to it, but you never just felt like you were sitting around so a guy could set up a prop. That's unfortunately not the case here, and part of that's probably because, again, homicides hurt, but there is a moment in this match where Creo takes, like, for freaking ever to bring out a Ring of Honor barricade, one of those sheet metal signs, out from under the ring, set up on four chairs in the ring, only so Homicide can eventually recover and slam Creel off the top rope onto it. And Cre- that, Yeah, and just Creel- so I know not to interrupt, but that took a long time, clearly because it was Homicide that was supposed to do that, and he just couldn't because of his shoulder. Yeah. And Carino, like, takes kind of a gnarly bump off it. Like, he almost lands on his shoulder and head from it, but... Like, as far as props go, it's like the, it's such a letdown for all the time it took them to set it up because, like, it's just a thin piece of sheet metal and, like, the chairs, like, shoot out from under them. It seems like a relatively, like, safe spot. And granted, in a way, that's good. But in a match where, like, there's fork to the ears and ace crusher through a table and barbed wire chairs and all this stuff, it's, it, like, it was a long setup for one of the tamer weapon spots in the match. It was just one of those things where it was, like, another, Dock against. And then finally, Matt, before I give it to you, I think the other big negative of this match is the overbooking where, yes, they're using it to put over the Colt Cabana thing, but in a match where, where Jim Cornette multiple times stresses, like, no outside interference, you know, in this promo, and then um, Gabe reminding us on commentary, to have Cabana wear a mask and interfere not once, but twice, including to set up the finish, like, he, like the finish directly comes from Colt you know, larrying, um Homicide. And I get it's probably to protect Homicide and to keep the cult feud hot and all that stuff. But, again, it's one of those things that make it feel more like a WWE match in the bad ways and kind of cheapens, you know, something special these guys had in their last couple matches. And it's just weird that they, they put such an emphasis on, you know, no interference, and then interference is like a central point of the match. So, despite all of that, here's the weird thing. I would say they worked hard. There was a lot of violence and blood and body sacrifice in this match. It, I would say it's slightly above average as a match. It's not close to their Bitter Friends, Different Enemies match or even their War of the Wire barbed wire match. But I would say, like, knowing the story, which I'll get to some more of the details afterwards and just their history, I was fascinated minute to minute by this match. But I feel like if you don't know that history, it'll just be kind of a somewhat eh, like weapons match, but knowing everything about this, like I was like entertained minute to minute. Um, yeah, I mean, crazy thing. I don't know. Maybe you'll think I'm nuts, but like, I like this match way, 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 way more than I remembered. Um, wow. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying it was a great match. Like, it definitely was worse than the 2003 matches, the two, the two big ones, anyway. Um, but like, it was such a spectacle. Like, for whatever it was, I mean, obviously it was horrible seeing Homicide's injury and, like, but, like, considering that that happened, like, the match was super, like, crazy and memorable. And, you know, I think part of it was that it had really good crowd heat. And, you know, nothing to me in wrestling is sadder than guys, like, brutalizing each other and themselves to a dead crowd. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And this one, they were brutalizing themselves and each other, but at least the crowd was was reacting. Um and there was some brutal stuff. I mean, Carino's ear, like, it looked like like a piece of tortellini covered in tomato sauce. Like, mm-hmm. like that's Making how... Making me hungry, Matt. <laughs> don't eat Carino's <laughs> ear. Um, don't make him Mick Foley just because you're hungry. Next time I have tortellini, I'm going to call it Carino's ears. I'm gonna be, I made a bunch of Carino's ears tonight, and people are going to think, oh, is that a really fancy Italian passage? Yeah, 
But, like, they, I mean, they were, they were just like, we're going to brutalize each other. And yes, it was convoluted. And yes, there was a lot of, like, I don't really know if it was attitude. I feel like it was more like ECW, more than like attitude era WWF. Like, it was just like, just like people are just like in their, and in fact, at one point, Prazak says, Carino is lying in a quote, bloody pool of his own blood. It's like, you know, that's, <laughs> that's a good, um, good adjective to describe a pool of blood. Um, but like, you know, they're like chucking chairs at each other's head, which, you know, we've established is horrible, but we've accepted this is a thing they did back then. Um, you know, they did do your favorite spot, the ace crusher through the table. Um, Yeah, again, but you know, again, I can't, it always gets over. Yeah. Even though it's the guy doing it that always takes the entire bump. But But hey, especially poor homicide here, since he already had the messed up shit there. Um, you know, and like, yeah, you could tell, like, especially the in the minutes after the injury, like, Homicide's face is like not just like in pain, like trying to grimace through the pain, but also like kind of like worried, like, I, oh shit, I can't move my arm. Yeah. By the by, late in the match, he's sort of like just gotten his like mojo back, and he's just like being himself and like just fighting through the pain. But like, you know, like I thought that you know Keener blading was like pretty entertaining. I agree with you that the uh, that the ending was bad. Like, just especially not just like because of like the storyline but also just after all that punishment cabana just hits a hits a clothesline and homicide gets pinned um the other thing is cabana's first appearance is him taking out smokes with a pipe and i thought like this match really could homicide really could have used smokes during this match like this is the worst (laughs) possible match to have smokes not there because like smokes could have helped him set up some of the props you know smokes could have like you know taken cover for him and like you know what i mean while he was yeah convalescing like he could have just yeah, like taking so much of the attention and like yeah. in a good way. Sometimes we, we like smokes, but occasionally we go, he takes too much of the attention. You know, yeah. this is a time where he desperately needed. As, yeah, yeah, that's a great point. Like it's the one match he doesn't have him. Yeah, exactly. Cabana ex- takes him out early with a pipe. Exactly. And the other thing is, um, Gabe goes after he gets takes out the pipe. He's like, maybe it's the person who took out Nancy Kerrigan. Which I was <laughs> like, that's a dated reference, even in two thousand and five. If, if anything, like it, wrestling. If anything, it might be more relevant now because of the I, Tanya movie that came out a few years ago. If he wanted to make it a wrestling reference, he could have done uh, – that's the butcher. Is that the butcher? Because, <laughs> you know, Beefcake in, in WCW, they famously did the Nancy Kerrigan thing when it was more timely <laughs> where they had Brutus Beefcake during a – I believe a Clash of the Champions take out Hogan. And they, they basically did the Nancy Kerrigan like why me no for right. no thing. That's right. But that was like the same year. Yeah, yeah. That was like a few is, months after the actual event, not this 11 is more and than a, a decade years later. later. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder, like, Matt, do you think, like, occasionally we have a listener that, like, did not grow up with Ring of Honor. Do you think, like, anyone that's, like, 20 years old today, if they hear that reference, will they even know, like, like, is it famous enough that people will know it that didn't live through it, won't even know who Nancy Kerrigan is, do you think? Yeah, because of I, Tanya. Oh, oh, yeah, I completely it's forgot. Just, about, oh, like, you just mentioned, yeah, I, Tanya. Yeah. I never saw I, Tanya, so it just keeps flying out of my one year out of the other but yeah huh the kids love i tanya that's, that's true it's the hottest thing among the <laughs> young people it's been it's been like four years but everyone's still talking about it so yeah you like the match more. i mean I, see, it, I just thought it was i just thought it was an incredible spectacle like like that's like that's like it just like it was not like it wasn't on the level of the great matches that they had like and i'm not saying it's a great match like it's just like it was spectacular, like in the literal sense of the word. Like it was just such a crazy thing, and they were really brutalizing each other, and the crowd loved it. And so I was too far away live to see it and enjoy it, like I guess. But oh. on video, it was just like, oh, this is 
this is quite the thing. I mean, you agree. I mean, clearly from your review, you agree with that. It was quite the thing. Again, I was entertained every single minute. But again, part of me, I don't know how much of it is because I'm kind of so invested in this promotion and these wrestlers and the story of their careers. But like, and, and I knew how badly the in, that it was a real injury. And I know, Matt, do you know it's not even the only injury homicide suffers in this match? Yeah, I don't really remember, but I do know I will, that. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I did a bunch of research on this. So let me see if I can find it here. We'll get to it. Uh, Oh, oh, first off, I want to, Matt, um, you know, sometimes on the show we do the classic Trevor Dame food analogies. And I think one of the last times I did it, you were like disappointed that I did not do, uh, I did, I keep doing them with meat. And so you can't relate as a vegetarian. Matt, I literally in my head, like a week ago when I came up with this one, made it just regular pizza so you can enjoy it as much as everybody else. So uh, this is my thing with this match, I would say. And I think this is not just this match, but a lot of wrestling in general, because um, I think one thing wrestling does sometimes, it, it, and again, I agree with you, it was a spectacle, it was really entertaining for what it was, but as a match, it's a far cry from a match I absolutely love in that 2003 match, but, but I'll say this, so something wrestling does a lot, I think, is um, people really love a match. And wrestlers will go, well, God, we got a topic because there's always rematches. What do, how do we top it? And they'll just go, well, what did people, what were people's favorite part of the match? And we'll just do more of that next time. And so like, for example, my favorite wrestling of all time is probably still nineties, all Japan men's wrestling. And something I didn't like, and some people really liked is as they got into the late nineties into pro wrestling, Noah, like those matches, what made them great was so many things. There was great selling and storytelling and nods to past matches and just epics. But two other things that were really good in those matches was they had really crazy head drops, which people loved. And they had these long sections of near falls, dramatic, dramatic near falls at the end of the matches. And a lot, and as the years came, all Japan decided we got, how do we top these matches, these great matches? And they just started to do more and more near falls and more and more head drops. And to some people that just kept getting better and better. To me, it got to the point where I was like, you're kind of getting away from like the balance of why I like this. And I kind of felt like this match was kind of like, again, it's hard to judge completely because of the, of the injury, but it, it felt like it was people going, well, how do we top those matches? People loved so much a couple of years ago. And it was just like, more weapons, more props, like run-ins, like like let's throw every bell and whistle. And like though the the blood and the violence and the weapons, those were great parts of those matches. But it's got to the point where I just kind of felt like it, they were starting to dominate this match. And and the way I would put that, here's where the food analogy comes in. If I if I gave Matt, if I cooked you a delicious pizza mm, and yeah. you loved it, just just a great cheese sauce crust, no meat, just a perfect balance, a classic Neapolitan pizza, you know. And I just, and you love it. And I go, Matt, did you love the pizza? You go, yes. And I go, I'll make you another one tomorrow. And I go, Matt, I'll tell you, t- tell you what, why don't you tell me what your favorite part of the pizza was? And you say, you know, Trevor, it was all great, but the sauce is the best part. You just have a, you have a way with the tomato, Matt, uh, Trevor. It's like, I love it on the crust. I love it on Carino's ears. I love it everywhere. <laughs> and, and I go, you'll come back tomorrow. I'm going to make you an even better pizza. And then you come back tomorrow and I make you the same pizza, except I have put four times as much sauce on it. <laughs> now, technically, you you might uh, you might you would probably say that's not as good of a pizza, but I could say to you, I took a pizza you loved, I took a thing you loved, and I gave you four times as much of your favorite part of it. But you would rightfully say, well, it's all out of balance now. Like, yes, my sauce is a fair part, but now it's swimming in sauce. It's it's the part of what makes the pizza great is it's everything's in proportion. It's the crust and the sauce and the tomato. And I feel like sometimes in wrestling, Matt, 
what wrestlers do and what I think like Karino Homicide did here is they just said, here's way more tomato sauce. Like, that's what we can do. I mean, we already established that is exactly what they did. Exactly. I mean, and in a way, you know, it is – it can be impressive to see that much tomato sauce, Matt. But yes. <laughs> I, I kind of wish there was more crust and, tomato, and cheese here. I, I understand completely. Can I just uh, do a uh, – as a side thing to what you're um, – because since you mentioned – I mean this is completely a tangent. But um, since you mentioned uh, the uh, the 90s All Japan, I, I, I remember – tell me if this rings true to you. Like I remember I got, I got a compilation of Masawa Kobashi matches, I don't know, 20 years ago, really long time ago. And um, you know they had that amazing match in January of 97, one of the best matches ever, right? Um, yeah. Those two, and then they—I remember seeing a match they had maybe like October '98, and I still to this day I'm like I don't know if I've ever seen a match that went as excessive with the two counts as uh, as that Masawa Kobashi match did. Like, so you could just really see from like one match to another how over how much they really leaned into those insane near falls. Yeah, I mean, it just again, I and I and I feel the plight of wrestlers because like it's hard. To make something better, like yeah, yeah, r- r- w- w- like and, and like the easiest thing to do is just let's make it longer, or let's like let's just do the thing people like the most and do more. But I feel like eventually it get, kind of gets to the point where it's just too much of a good thing, and I almost feel like even though fans might be disappointed, sometimes I would prefer if like when you do a rematch, just try and do something different rather than let's just do more of a great thing because sometimes too much is just too much, you know? Yeah, and, I mean when you get that much tomato sauce. It's like yeah. you're, you're sort of just like you know. I feel like I've been assassinated, <laughs> and that's what I think. Some I was of these wondering where that did. was going, and I was not disappointed. But like go, going back to the though, like like I think kind of what your point was like these guys like they did not slack on the effort here. Like they clearly were willing to do so goddamn much. You know, I mean the fork in the ear and all the props. Like they worked really hard, and so I, I feel bad the way criticized. It's just I feel like. Man, you did a lot here, and it's kind of like overwhelming everything else. I th- but- I think from now on, when there's a match like this where they just like kind of overwhelm stuff with this, I'm gonna say this is a match that this is like an assassination kind of match. They, they, <laughs> they really, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to remember to do this. It's like when there's a match that's just like Ungapachka or or whatever you know that's uh, as Nick Weiger likes to say on Doughboys, or <laughs> or just where it's just too much of a good thing. I will say that I've been assassinated by the match. Hold, you know, me to, hold people, me to it, Trevor. I people already call blood juice, so you know if 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 we're going to have any legacy on wrestling, maybe we can get assassinated in the vernacular. Yes. One just, day, just remind me that if, if anybody fam- just remind me that if anyone famous gets assassinated, to not say it because I know that'll be like <laughs> too soon cancellation. You know the whole deal. What if Chef Boyardee got assassinated? Is he still alive? I feel like he. Probably, I don't even I know. Like he, he, I, feel like he, I feel like he almost <laughs> definitely isn't if he ever was in the first place. <laughs> Anyway, you know, this is going to be an episode I think people are either going to think it's one of our best episodes or one of our worst. I, I think it's one of our best, but let's uh, – Yeah, the real Chef Boyardee um, was like the opening <laughs> restaurants in the 20s, I'm discovering. So I feel like he's not alive. I feel like I did not expect when we started recording tonight that something you were going to have to do is quickly Google Chef Boyardee. <laughs> well, the good news is he cannot get ass- assassinated, so – because he's already dead. Uh, so, um, yeah. They're, they're, now, Homicide and Carino—they have had, <laughs> so uh, they have had a lot of um, 
you know, heat against each other. And as someone who, like, I'm no insider. I have no idea how much it is real or not. They seem to, it seems to be real. They seem to insist about a lot, a lot of it. Um, this is a thing where, uh, this was a match where they definitely had some bad blood from it, I would think. So, a couple of notes from, first from the observer from right after the show. Dave wrote about this match. I heard reports it was great and reports it wasn't good at all. I guess it depends well, both on are, what you both think. Are, both are true. <laughs> Yeah, again, that, that kind of sums up our review, you know, like it's kind of valid. You can see it both ways. Um, Dave wrote, I guess it depends on what you think of forks being dug into foreheads. Um, ears, Dave, pumps- ears. Yeah, exactly. Dave, once again, just picking the wrong life reports. Um, lots yeah, Dave, of pumps- Dave and his, Dave and his, uh, his fake news. <laughs> <laughs> He's always inches off. Um, Lots of problems from early on. Homicide did his tope con hilo and overshot, hurting his shoulder. At one point, Carino stuck the fork in his head too hard. When he told Carino not to attack his shoulder because he's hurt, Carino heard wrong and then started kicking the shoulder hard. Now, by the way, that is, you can see that. I was on the lookout for that. There is a point in this match where it's like in the middle of the match, like minutes, quite a few minutes after, um, the injury happens. Creel like starts stomping homicide in the shoulder and you can see homicides like face turn like real very quickly. And he gets like mad. He's like, don't fucking like, like, like it gets not wrestling talk, but like we're working a match. Like don't fucking do that real. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll get to a little bit more of that in a second. Um, Oh, right here. Um, uh, when he told Creel not to attack his shoulder because he's hurt, Creel heard wrong and then started kicking the shoulder hard. When when Cabana ran in, he clotheslined Homicide and knocked him silly and Homicide wanted out because he had gutted through about the match out for about 11 minutes at that point, since the injury at that, by that point. That was not the original finish. Homicide went uh. to the hospital after the match and he never goes to the hospital. He had a very badly bruised shoulder and will be out for a few weeks. So yeah, that's the other thing. If you watch this match, like, Homicide takes a close eye, and I watched again knowing this. He gets Colt comes back in the mask a second time after taking out smokes early, creams homicide with the, with this clothesline. And if you watch this match, um, after that clothesline, like homicide has to lie there for a while because Mike Keener, the ref who got taken out, he has to really sell slowly recovering, making the slow three count. And so homicide's selling being taken out by this clothesline, and you can see as soon as the uh, as like the pin is is done, homicide like instantly like shoves Karina's arm off him, and like immediately gets out of the ring like like kind of like that I'm done selling, I'm done wrestling, like fuck this, I'm I'm going, you know, kind of like pissed off, I'm I've had enough of this kind of and energy. Blame him. Yeah, exactly. But um. And then, so a few weeks later, Dave wrote, had an update about this in the Observer. Um, right here, Dave wrote, the homicide Carino deal is a weird one in the sense that often promotions take real life heat and then try to capitalize on it by having the guys work a program. Homicide and Carino started by working a stiff program, but things have gotten to where they may break them away from each other in Ring of Honor because of the heat from the program. At TNA, Homicide was telling people he was going to get at Carino, believing that Carino deliberately didn't catch him on the dive that messed up his shoulder and was kicking the shoulder. Again, with Carino, who knows? Which I thought was kind of weird for Dave to write. Like, I don't know if he just meant because they've had prior heat because, you know, Carino lost the hearing from uh, in one of his ears from Aaron Homicide slap. But that's kind of a heavy thing to accuse someone of to be like, maybe he did it all on purpose. But anyway. Well, he didn't, he didn't exactly say that. So Dave has plausible deniability here. No. Yeah, you're right. Um, 
anyway, Dave continues, but the homicide deal is bad. He tried to work the prior weekend on the FIP show, and it became clear he couldn't. He needs shoulder surgery, but doesn't have insurance and can't afford to take the six months off after surgery to let it heal. Fucking, it's a bad fucking America. Yeah. Um, it's a bad time for him because he's just starting with TNA, and his job in TNA is to do the bulk of the work for the Conan, Apollo, and Homicide Trium, Threesome. Shocker may also be brought back for it, but it will be hard to make him part of the group if he can't work. Plus, regarding Ring of Honor, he's among the highest paid guys there, and while they can shoot angles with him for a while when he's hurt, they can only do it for so long. When he's a little better, they can do what they do with guys who are working hurt during the short, doing the short brawls all over the building, but eventually you have to do the good matches or you start falling behind with the standards so high. So, yeah, like this was the worst time for Homicide to get hurt because, yeah, like Dave said, he was breaking into TNA at this point with LAX. Um, I don't think Homicide's out for that long, but I think that his shoulders kind of, I think that hampers him for maybe ever after this. And it's one, like you said, like fucking America with the insurance, but also I feel like sometimes wrestlers, like we've seen in modern t- years, like in the last 20 years, there have been eras where top indie guys can make six figures on the indies and sometimes people are like well if you're making good money why would you sell out for even similar money in a major promotion and i feel like this is the kind of thing people forget about which is like if you're even making good money on the indies and you get hurt like it's not like wwe or AEW where you're getting paid even to sit on the shelf and recover you're you're screwed you know you have to come back yeah although especially back then you still weren't getting health insurance from your wrestling companies Exactly. Like, like, so it is just sad. Like a guy like Homicide, I think he was saying on some shooting review, I saw like, oh, I, you know, I wrestling is my full time gig. And I think it was the one in early 2007. So I don't know if he was at that point yet. But it's one of those things where clearly he was at a point where he probably wrestling was at least a sizable part of his income. And at that point, you have two options, which is literally like screw myself financially or just gut through something I probably shouldn't be gutting through. and. He definitely seemed to do the latter, but uh, it's intermission now, late match intermission because they're setting up the cage uh, on late show intermission. That is Gary Michael Capetta is there. He's backstage with Lacey. Lacey says Lacey's angels have been doing great. They're on a winning streak. In fact, they're doing so great. She felt that they deserve the night off, which is why they're not on the show. So this entire promo is literally just to be like, hey, don't forget that Lacey's angels exist. They're just not on the show. And that brings us to the main event. Steel Cage Warfare match, Generation Next of Austin Aries, Jack Evans, Matt Seidel, and Roderick Strong defeated the Embassy of Abyss, Alex Shelley, Jimmy Rave, and Prince Nana in 41 minutes, 36 seconds. The eliminations went as follows, because this, in fact, was an elimination match. Uh, Jimmy Rave eliminated Matt Seidel via pinfall in 22 minutes, 22 seconds after he hit the pedigree, a.k.a. Green Ghana, after Abyss had also hit Seidel with a black hole slam. Jack Evans then eliminated Abyss via pinfall in 33 minutes, 20 seconds, after he hit the O to the Bulldogs off the top of the cage, which, crazy spot, where um Roderick Strong is holding Abyss as he straddles, stands on the top rope, and then Jack jumps off the top of the cage onto Abyss, who's sitting on top of Roddy's shoulders, and then does the moonsault. Um, or he does it to uh, Rave or whoever uh, Strong was holding before he hits Abyss with the moonsault. Um, Alex Shelley eliminated Jack Evans via pinball in 35 minutes, 50 seconds after he hit an air raid crash off the second rope. Robert Strong eliminated Jimmy Rave in, via submission in 40 minutes and 6 seconds when he made him tap out to the stronghold. And at the exact same time, Austin Aries eliminated Alex Shelley via pinfall in 40 minutes and 6 seconds after he hit a DDT and a brain buster on open steel chair. And then finally, Austin Aries eliminated Prince Nana via pinfall in 41-36 
After hitting the 450, the only survivors in the match, Austin Aries and Roderick Strong. So, Matt, before I throw it to you, I will just explain the rules. This was Ring of Honor's, I would say, their take on war games. You still had the staggered entries with the heels going first because they won the rights to go first by winning that tag match at Vendetta. You still had a cage. Obviously, you don't have the two rings. You don't have the uh, the closed top. It's an open-top standard steel cage in one ring. Um, instead of a door, Ring of Honor just like cut out one panel of the cage where a door would be. So that, that was like... And because of that, wrestlers could kind of freely go in and out of the ring dur- throughout the match. And there was a couple key moments during this match where that happened. Um, it was elimination, as we point out, instead of the regular war games where it would just be one, f- the first person to quit on one team loses the whole match for their team. And eliminations could happen anytime, unlike war games where the match can only end when everybody gets in the ring. And finally, the last big change, which I think hurt the match we can talk about later, um, instead of the regular war games where it's a five minutes for the first two guys. And then after that, a new guy comes in every two minutes. This was five minutes for the first two guys. And then every five minutes, another guy comes in. So much longer periods of it before each entry. And uh, yeah, that was this match. And that was the end of the feud. So Matt, what do you think about this as a big blow off as a big gimmick match as a ring of honors, kind of their first take on war games. I think you could say their cage of death match later next year would have kind of elements of war games to it as well. But what do you think about this one? Well, every promotion basically since um, since WCW went out of business has tried to do their version of war games, right? Like in America, pretty much every single one. Indies, big companies. I think even TNA did their version, right? Like they had what, – what is TNA's version called? I don't even remember. Uh, um, I'm not sure. I know they did the pay-per-views lockdown, which were where every yeah, match – Yeah, oh, lethal, lethal lockdown, right? That, that's yeah. what it is, yeah. And then you know, uh, AEW does blood and guts. WWE does war games. Um, you know, or NXT, I guess. Um, and I, I think, think even MLW has done war games. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and you know, I think IWA Mid South like did their version. Like, I think lots of indies did. Um, yeah. Every single one of them, I think, has suffered from the same problem, which is they're too long. They dragged them out. The classic war games matches were like fast paced, and they ended very quickly after all five guys were in the ring, like within a few minutes, usually, right? Yeah. Um, and. Every other company doesn't do that, and they make it. I think the, the idea, I guess, is that they just want it to be epic, and sometimes epic is not as good as just short and intense. And they all would have benefited from that. Now, I think here's here's my thing. I think ROH probably did the best ever non WCW version of War Games. It just wasn't this match. Yeah, it was. I cage, agree. It was Cage of Death, um, which we'll get to in, in a while, but. Um, this match was had a lot of good stuff in it. Like it had a lot of spectacular stuff, but the problem was repeatedly over and over again, a wrestler would enter the match, do a lot of really cool stuff, and then because they had like four more minutes to kill, it would slow to a crawl again and the crowd would get quiet again. And it's not like the work was ever bad, but there were points where it was boring. Like they definitely worked hard, so I don't want to knock that at all. Um but like there was also the thing of, you know, one thing that made War Games cool, you know, obviously I think it would be hard for ROH to have done like the two rings and all that stuff. But the idea that they're trapped in a cage with each other is part of the whole deal. And Gabe immediately says right from the beginning, uh, you know, they're not trapped in the cage, so the cage is basically just a weapon or a prop here. And it's like, all right, I guess that's not ideal. <laughs> but all right, again, I mean, if you want to say it that way, I guess that is how they used it, just as a prop. So like, so... It starts with Ares and Rave, 
and they immediately fight outside the cage. That's like the first thing they do. And to me, that doesn't super get over the gimmick, but fine. You know, like they want to do it that way. That's fine. Oh, by the way, another side thing before I get too much into the match. Um, Gabe mentions at the beginning, they didn't, since there's so much history to recap, they don't even bother making a video because they couldn't recap at all. And I was just thinking, like, they just did a music video recap for this match, um, at, uh, the Vendetta, uh, eight man tag. So they clearly <laughs> already had a video. So you could say that instead of saying that we couldn't make one, you know? <laughs> That's, I guess, beside the point, though. But, you know, so they do that. Um, and then, then Shelly comes in next. He has a chair, you know, they, He's wearing a Generation Next shirt to troll Ares. Um, you know, they beat up Ares methodically for a while. Then Seidel comes in and he does some cool stuff. He uh, he goes for a moonsault, but Shelly gets his knees up, so Seidel flies over. Then he drop toe holds Rave into Shelly's knees. Then he stands on Rave's back and does a moonsault onto Rave's back into Shelly's knees, which I thought was pretty cool. Um, they do this convoluted thing where they wrap Rave's legs around Shelly in a head scissors and then turn them both over into a double bow and arrow, which was wacky and cool. You know, then the, you know, the heat dies down again. They're killing more time. No one blades for like the first like 25 minutes, actually, which is surprising because in war games, it's just like, that's like instant blading in those original war games matches, right? Um, mm-hmm. Abyss comes in third. You know, I think he looks really good here. You know, I remember live like him. Abyss was like, you know, his his like his appearance was one of the hottest parts of the match. He he shoves the timekeeper, gets into the ring, does the torture rack drop on Ares right away, and he kicks Seidel away in the process. Chucks Seidel up and shoves him down. And you know, they the they beat on now they beat on the Generation X for a while. At this point, someone yells, Shelly, you fucking sell out. And Shelly responds, You fucking suck, fatty. And then Prazak just says, matter of factly, and Shelly talking some trash to an overweight individual in the crowd. <laughs> I love that. I was just like, okay. Um, not going to comment, but interesting. Um, they they do a thing where Shelly actually does the skull fuck, you know, like head bump thing from Ares onto the chair um, a bunch of times, which looks like it really hurt. Probably that probably really hurt, right? Like that had to mm-hmm. like that's you know. But um, and at that point, Ares finally blades. Then Strong comes in. He goes bonkers with chops and backbreakers, so the crowd wakes up for that. Strong goes for the big fireman's carry double knees on Abyss, but Abyss powers out, and then Strong runs the ropes, and Abyss does this really cool overhead belly-to-belly suplex onto Strong right into the cage, which I thought was probably the best match, best spot of the match up to that point. Um, now Rave is bleeding. Um, Seidel leapfrogs over Rave right into a black hole slam. Um, and Abyss tries to pin him, but Rave tells him, no, I want to pin him. So he, he pulls Abyss off, pedigrees, or greetings from Ghana's, uh, Seidel and pins him. So now it's that three on two. Um, I will say Seidel didn't get to do as much as I would have expected. He had a lot of big yeah. flying moves that he really did not get to do. I guess to not outshine Evans, I was, I was surprised he didn't do more for this big blow off. But the stuff he he's did. He's the only guy that gets eliminated before everyone's in the match. Yeah, it was interesting. Why they? I don't know why they did that. But I guess it did get Abyss over. Um, you know, so Nana comes out next. You know, I think this was a, a negative because, like, Nana, at this point, Nana coming out after the generation, after the embassy is already in control, and then they have five minutes to kill, you know, that's just like, that's too much time. Um, yeah. 
no one's blade job is epic, by the way. Like, but I think Rave is probably the best of the three bleeders, which are Rave, Rave Ares, and Strong. Um, so yeah, so they beat down Generation X for a while. It's not super interesting, and then they finally get to like the the climactic part of the match, which where it gets good. So Jade Chung appears. Now the whole thing with Jade Chung was she was pedigreed after the Chicago show uh, on the on the concrete, and like her face was like destroyed supposedly. Mm-hmm. But she comes out, but she just has like one bandage on her cheek, and otherwise <laughs> looks the same. So, I mean, I mean, what 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 were they really going to do? But like, still, it's it's just funny, like the way how much they oversold it. But yeah. but still, I thought it was done well because she's just like, oh, you think a pedigree, so pedigree is going to put me down after all the abuse? I'm on my own two feet, and like Nana like tells everybody in the embassy to leave the ring and chase her around ringside, which sets up perfectly Jack Evans's entrance where he comes out, gets into the ring. The embassy is already all on the floor, so so Evans just looks around. Immediately, first thing he does, goes to the top of the cage and hits a double moonsault onto the embassy, or really just abyss. But, um, <laughs> you know, I remember live, like, that was just one of the most spectacular things I ever saw. And it's an actual... He kills abyss. I'm shocked yeah. that abyss wasn't, like, doesn't have a concussion. He, he hits him right in the head with his legs coming from the double moonsault off the top of the cage. Yeah, it was crazy, and, I mean... What a moment live, like just like one of the more memorable live moments I can remember in ROH and, you know, something that I could actually see because he was up on top of the cage. Um, um, so that was a really cleverly done spot. A good use of Jade Chung, I would say. Um, so now Evan Strong and Aries, they go to attack on the floor. They triple team Abyss in the ring. Roderick gets the double knees on him. And then I agree with you, but if you if you said this, I, maybe I misheard you. I think this is even more spectacular than the double moonsault. Um, Rave follows up Jack, but Strong stands on the top rope with him on his shoulders, and Evans jumps off the top of the cage onto Rave's shoulders and does the Ode to the Bulldogs moonsault off of Rave's shoulders, off of Rave's shoulders above the cage, which is like terrifying. Like he really, Evans could have like super died on that move, like, like jumping off a sweaty body. He slipped on that but, move before. We've seen it. Y- yeah. I mean, it's funny because the the one those, of those two spots, they're both incredible, but the double moonsault is the one that always gets put into like the compilations of, of spots on yeah, stuff. Yeah. That to me, the, the the crazier spot, like you just said, is when you think about how dangerous it is, yeah. is jumping off another human being at that height while the other guy's holding you, by the way, is standing on the ropes. Yes. Like, insane. insane. But he hits it. It looks great, at least from the angle that we saw. And. It's the perfect way to eliminate Abyss, I would say, um, in my opinion. So now it's three on three. Um, everyone's taking turns attacking Rave. Shelly stops them. Evan goes for the 630 on Shelly. Shelly gets his knees up and then hits the air raid crash off the middle rope and pins Jack, which the crowd is extremely unhappy about. I remember everyone was really pissed about that because it's like, why are you eliminating the star of the match? It really didn't even seem necessary to eliminate him, honestly. Like, they could have just kept him in there. They could have had all three of those guys uh, uh, survive the match, right? But Well, you have to think they want Aries and Strongest all the final two to kind of set up the tag title run, I guess, to kind of... Sure. But the funny thing is, them winning the tag title should establish them as a great tag team. You don't, I don't know if you need them to be the only two survivors, but I guess... Yeah, I mean, I guess they, they also just I guess they also just thought, you know, maybe just they wanted to give a little bit more jeopardy to Aries and Strong in the end. Yeah. I'm sure that's what it was. So, like, Nana's basically just watching while everyone else fights, and the crowd gets quiet again because they're mad about Evans being eliminated. Um, 
you know, and they're just, they do a few near falls. Like gonorrhea gets a near fall. Shelly gets a shell shock, but Strong breaks up the pin. And then uh, Raven Shelly, they set up Strong and Aries in the corner for like Nana's running butt butt. And I guess this is a cute spot. Uh, you know, even though it's surprising to have a comedy spot so late in the match, but basically Nana goes for his like running butt in the corner, but he misses both guys and hits his own guy because they move out of the way, but he doesn't realize it either time. So he's just like <laughs> gloating and dancing after he just like butted his own two guys in the corner. And then, so like, that's, that's kind of cute, I suppose, but still weird timing for a spot like that. Meanwhile, strong backbreakers rave like five times in a variety of different ways, then gets the stronghold. Simultaneously, Aries DDT Shelly on a chair and brain busters him on a chair. So Aries pins Shelly while Rave is tapping out to the stronghold, which is cool. And that leaves Strong and Aries alone with Nana. And Nana, of course, tries to run away. They ping-pongs back and forth. Eventually, they get the half-Nelson backbreaker. Aries follows up with the 450, gets the win. Uh, and, uh, yeah. So, like, that's a match with a lot of really great spots. But, like, it dragged a lot at a lot of times. And just, like, the intervals were a killer. Um, uh, you know, there are other things that I think could have been different. I think they maybe could have made it more like inside the cage and not just use the cage as a prop and not, you know, relied so much on the in and out stuff. But if they were going to do that, at least make it shorter. Um, but you can't fault the effort and the big spots were really great. So I still thought the match was good, but I think a little bit disappointing. I, I like, like, I think if you really like, like as far as like super fun, like spectacle matches, I think their match in Buffalo was actually the most exciting. The Yeah. Yeah. But like, this one, this one had its moments, definitely. Like it's certain, like you know, certainly good. And I just, man, if it was just half as long, it would have been much better. So something I did because you really got me thinking when you brought up like the lengths of war games matches. So, um, when I was a kid, like in Canada, at least where I lived in Western Canada in BC, um, my video stores, big WF, like you could get every WWF Coliseum home video pretty much in a lot of the video stores. And there was very few WCW videos ever for years until I got TBS for a while. Like WCW, anything was the Holy grail for me. That was, that, that, that was honestly pretty common in video stores across, I think across America too. Like WWF had a way bigger presence in a lot of these major video stores. Um, I guess they were just better at distributing. So in like the mid to late nineties, my favorite video store, they had tons of WF and they had like two or three W they would eventually get like a few random, like late nineties, WCW pay-per-views on VHS. But the one WCW show they had was actually technically NWA was a compilation tape of the first two war games matches that were done on like the house. So house show circuit, I think during, yeah, uh, it was the bash 87 comp tape. Yeah. I, I, that my, my store had that one too. And um, I just looked up out of curiosity. So, Matt, you were talking about how long this match is. This match, I think I looked, I said was like 41 minutes or something. That entire tape, which has two War Games matches on it, was 50 minutes. So, like, that shows you the difference of, like, the original, like, the classics that inspired all the imitators. You could fit basically almost two of them in the length of this match. Yep. Um. So... This match, I would say, like, it does a lot, it hits a lot of the beats that you need to hit, but yet all your criticisms 
are true and bring it down. Like if you look at it, it does a lot of the little things right. Like or not the little things, the big things I would say. Like the heels have the advantage which you need in a war games match. You can't get cute. Like a war games match, I always say, is a hot tag delivery system because what 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 makes a war games match great? One of the things is it takes something that people really like in tag matches, which is the hot tag, where the heels have beaten down the faces. All of a sudden, the fresh face comes in and runs wild. You know, a lot of tag matches you get one, maybe two of those sequences. A war games match gives you that four or five times, you know, or three or four times. And that's what makes them really great. And as long as you do the, uh, have the heels get the advantage, this match does that. Um, I think it starts out well where it's Ray and Aries and Aries just destroys Ray for pretty much the first entire five minutes to really stress like how screwed the embassy will be when they don't have the numbers advantage. And so that's kind of fun and satisfying. Uh, Jade Chung returns, like you mentioned, and she, uh, yes, it's ridiculous that for someone that we're to- we were told was had her face destroyed to the point where she's leaving all of wrestling to see her come back with a small bandage on, on is ridiculous. And it is, a note for note redo of the Lucifer thing during the second city saints prophecy feud, where she comes back after being beaten out of wrestling forever to, but it still was like a satisfying full circle moment. It is like and, you and cleverly done to set up that spot. Yeah, I was, yeah, I was, yeah, that was great too. Like you were saying. And, um, the f- one thing I thought was weird about though, she get, does a little mic work when she comes up to distract them. And one thing she says, it's uh, felt, so like stiff she said something to the effect of like not none of you're the they're known as the man of a thousand expressions but i bet i but i've never seen that one before on your face and it's like is prince not unknown as the man of a thousand expressions like i don't know if i've ever heard that before that's not like such a weird thing like prince not you're the man of a thousand expressions you like, know chris jericho's the man of a thousand and one expressions <laughs> expression number one smile <laughs> So that that I really enjoyed. I thought it ended well, the way it should where Nana, you know, the the guy who at this point's career is mostly a manager is like left alone to t- get his just desserts. I think that's the right ending for this kind of match. I even liked how Aries and Strong they each took out their like longtime rival simultaneously with their signature move. So like you know, Strong gets to take out Ray, who I guess isn't a longtime rival, but he attacked Jay Chung, and then Aries takes out Shelly, you know, at the same time to bring that kind of full circle. Um, I liked all those big story beats. I thought they hit just the way they needed to hit, but like you said, it's just too long, and that affects it a couple of ways. Like you said, I think a lot of this match. Like, there's a reason why those war game matches had the two-minute intervals once you had, like, numbers advantage. It's because you don't need longer than two minutes, and it's really hard to sustain, I think, five minute a five-minute beatdown, make it entertaining. And this match, like you were saying, there's a lot of parts of this match where it's just the heels kind of stomping and choking and not doing anything really exciting to the faces. And it kind of almost feels like you can feel them just waiting for the next guy to come in and the next big planned spot. Like it really, I feel like a lot of times in wrestling, we, we complain in modern wrestling about sometimes there's two matches are too planned out. This was a match that I feel like it needed to be a bit more planned out because there are times in this match where the heels are just like, it feels like they don't know what to do. Like they got more time than they know what to do with. And it's just like, what are we going to do till Jack comes in? What are we going to do till, you know, so-and-so comes in? And um, the other way it hurt, I think, was the elimination thing. Because I don't think eliminations in this kind of match are a bad thing. But I would have made it until the elimination – so that the eliminations only could start when everyone was in the match. Because 
there are moments in this match where everyone's just standing around and there's no urgency, like especially when the announcers would be like, you know, one minute or, you know, whatever, 60 seconds till the next, uh, you know, entrant and the heels would have the advantage. And since eliminations can happen at any time, you would think the heels, since they were in such dominant positions, would like be in a real rush. Like we got to try and eliminate someone before they even the odds. And instead of so often it's like that announcement would happen and they would just lackadaisically do a couple stomps and a choke. And it, like it, it's like it gave them a reason to be urgent. The eliminations gave them a reason to be urgent in a match where they frequently were not urgent, which I think kind of like sh- emphasized how weird parts of this and how long, over long this match could be. They corrected uh, that for Cage of Death where they made it one fall to a finish. And I think that was the right move. Yeah. Definitely. Um, the Jack Evans spot's absolutely amazing. And, you know, it's funny, like, it's a match where he's not in very many for very long, but he makes a huge impact. I think he's the biggest star. Other than that, Abyss, uh, you mentioned, I agree, like, his section is really fun, where he kind of gets to run wild for, but even that, it's only a couple of minutes and then it kind of slows back down again to your point. Um, I, I thought the other thing I could have used more of, and I thought the only guy that really did it was Alex Shelley, was, I think a fun of the war games too is when the heels have the advantage that they're just delighted it and they're just real dicks about rubbing it in. And I thought Alex Shelley was from a character standpoint, the star of this match where he was delighting in rubbing it in and just like taunting the fans. Like you point out wearing the generation next t-shirt. Like I thought he did a great job of that. I wish more, there was more of that and everyone else got more into that. Even when he did because, that, even when he did that skull bouncing spot, he was like, yeah, Aries, watch it back later on the tape. Yeah, that's, that's such a great line, you know, and I, and like, he's like, he was loving it. And everyone else was just kind of playing their roles, but it seemed like he was having a blast, just like, and again, that, if you're not gonna have a big action for the whole five minutes at a time when the heels are in control, that's a way you could still entertain. It's just be, be kind of like a funny asshole, like really gloat. Um, but yeah, overall, this is a match that did the big things right. It's just too long and, they, they, they didn't have enough stuff to fill up. And, and I, I think I agree with you after listening to you talk. Like, I just don't think a War Games match should necessarily be that long. It should be two minute entries and then maybe you have like a few minutes at the end. Cause really the best part of War Games is always the staggered entries. It's not what comes after. It, yeah. It's, yeah. I mean, I think yeah. even AEW with the, the first Blood and Guts match, they did the, they had the same problem. It was just too long and too drawn out. And kind of going back to the Carino, you know, uh, homicide thing. This was a match, you know, it was a, a little bit of a, it got assassinated a little bit. It, it, it was a little too much. Assassinated us again. You know, they, 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 they thought they were making it better by get, making it longer, giving you longer periods, you know, and it not necessarily, you know, what, even though you would think in some ways, Hey, like we're giving you more in some way, we're giving you eliminations. We're giving you more, more of this match. It's, not always what you actually want. A bunch of a assass- uh, a bunch of assassins booking this show. <laughs> Gabe, that's Gabe. Uh, Gabe cannot leave for the world of NFTs for a variety of reasons, but that that's now the number one is he needs to come back just so his new nickname can be like the the assassinate or or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> we love you, Gabe. <laughs> Also, I forgot one other great spot I loved. I, I forget if you mentioned it, but when Abyss had Matt Side, um, Abyss had Ares in the torture rack, and he gives Matt Sydal a big boot while he's holding Abyss in the torture rack. I mean, Ares in the torture rack. I thought that was really cool. Um. Anyway, so I would say, like, if I had to give this a star rating, I would give it like three and three quarters, three and a half, somewhere in there. So it's not that's not a good match, and I think you said also it's a it's a very good match, but it's just. 
it's not as good as I remembered it. I, I think I, I, when I was younger, maybe I was less analytical about wrestling, maybe in some ways. You know, you know what? I bet you when I first watched the show all those years ago, I probably did not like the Romero Danielson match nearly as much. And I probably like this match quite a bit more. And it's just the way, you know, life changes you, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think live this was my favorite match because I could see a lot of it. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> I'm serious. Like, it's, I know it's, it's going back to that well, but like, this was definitely a good match live. But I even remember live, I remember it got quiet and it was like, this is kind of dragging a little bit. But like, those big spots at the end were so exciting, you know, and, and yeah. Abyss and Abyss's entrance was really exciting. So there was enough really cool stuff throughout to keep it going, but yeah. I just wish it was shorter. So uh, after the match, all of Generation next, and Jade Chung celebrating the ring, and Jade at one point, like, Rave is down the ring selling. She uses him as a footstool to kind of, like, pose on the ropes, which, again, is another one of those yeah. great kind of where it's st- – I-, I love those moments where things go full circle. I love, like, that in a way that was the start of all of this, and that's how it ends. Like, I think that's yeah. a really nice little moment. That was a great moment for sure. Like, really great. And then um, Aries screams at the camera that it's all over for the embassy, and Generation Next is now coming for the tag title, so already setting that up for the next show. And uh, then we uh, cut to Samoa Joe backstage. Joe says the ones you're closest with hurt you the most. He wants to know why Jay Lethal did this to him after everything they've been through together. He tries to look choked up as he just like, why, Jay? Why? And then he just walks away. For Forlorn Samoa Joe. We very rarely get the forlorn Samoa Joe. Basic and to the point final promo. Yeah. And that is Steel Cage Warfare. Um, Matt, just just first- like the most recent Dynamite, it ends with Samoa Joe and Jay Lethal. <laughs> <laughs> this was certainly a noteworthy show. Like it, you could tell just, it's funny. Like not everything went as good as it could have been, but definitely, you know, it's, you know, another show where Gabe is clearly seeing New York as one of his biggest markets where Jay lethal heel turn, you know, Lance storm surprise appearance, you know, big feud ending, massive gimmick match, a, a rematch to like one of the classic ring of honor matches of all time. Like they really did throw a lot on this show. Yeah, I've used this word a lot on this review, but it was a spectacle. Like, this is just, like, an impressively spectacular show for ROH. Like, it was not their best wrestling show by a long shot, although that title match really is a great match. Um, but it was a, like, it was, it felt like a big deal. And, like, it's super entertaining, I would say, the whole way through. There was nothing bad at all on it. And so this is, yeah, I'd say, you know, this is, again, we're a, we're a far cry from some of the boring shows from the middle of the year. Like, this is a... This is this is like a really entertaining DVD, and uh, yeah, I mean, if you're into ROH in this era, this is it's worth watching. It's it's memorable. It was a memorable, memorable show, even though the wrestling was not the peak of ROH. Yeah, I think you put it. That's a great way to put it. I was kind of struggling for my thoughts, and you kind of framed it for me right there. Because yeah, I would say like it's disappointing in the sense of if you look at this card on paper. A lot of the matches, for various reasons we've gone through, do, don't quite live up to the hype. Because on paper, this card looks great. But there's nothing that's bad, like you said. And I think everything feels notable. Like, like, like the way you put really is the best. It, it's a spectacle. And I feel like on this show, like the spectacle kind of makes up for some of the matches not quite hitting the way they potentially could. Exactly. And, and, and so it's a, it's a really unique show, I think, in that sense. Because I feel like Ring of Honor kind of usually lives or dies just on are the matches good? You don't get a lot of shows. Like, compared to WWE, where, like, there are a lot of WWE shows in my lifetime where, like, one big angle or one big spectacle, like, saves 
kind of middling wrestling. The re- the re- show- this, this year's WrestleMania, I would say, it's like wasn't the world's greatest wrestling show, but it was like quite a spectacle. Yeah, I mean, the first night of WrestleMania, yeah, I wouldn't call that as like a nuts and bolts great show, although there was some really good wrestling on it, but it was like, as just a night of entertainment, it was great. And this is kind of the closest I feel like we've seen Ring of Honor get to that kind of same vibe. I agree. uh, I would say the last time it got like, it would be like that, where it was like an ROH show where the spectacle really carried it even more than the wrestling, was the first Death Before Dishonor. Yeah, yeah, too. Because even like yeah, that stuff like even the Jeff Hardy thing where it wasn't good, but it was at least like fascinating. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or or like the Paul London match. Yeah, yeah, that, that's a great that's a great grab there because yeah, like the Paul London Samoa Joe match was like this show. It was not as good as you'd hope it would be, but because it was like a special importance, you were like, yeah, this is still worth watching. But exactly. Um. So that is the show. If you want to send us an email like Eric did, I mean, great email. Like that, that shows you how much emails can add to a show. You know, if you have little stories, they can be so fun. Or even just have thoughts you want to give. We love to read them. We don't guarantee we'll always use them on the show, but we often do. So that would be through the years at gmail.com. Thank God, Matt, you caught that because I did not check the email today. Um, our Twitters, if you want to see what dumb things I'm getting, what tr- I'm trying to be more better behaved, but I'm sure I will screw that up eventually. At Trevor Dame, at Mayor MGF, Matt posts tweets way less than me, but his tweets are much higher batting average. I'm a guy who swings all the time, and I get a bunch of home runs, but I actually like strike out eight out of ten times. My, my, twi- my th- tweets are not as good as yours. Don't even try it, but they are much more wholesome. You will not you will not see a lot of drama from a Matt Feuerstein tweet. I am, so, not, yeah. I am not courting controversy. I like <laughs> I like everyone. Yeah, you, you don't care if it creates cash. You're, you're being safe. Um, we have a thread on the ProWrestlingOnly.com plugs forum, uh, all our feeds, blah, blah, blah. And next time on the show, if this was big, we are going from strength to strength for the next few shows, actually, um, because the next show – is Final Battle 2005, which would be a big show on its own because it's got a big tag title match. It's got uh, the the next big chapter of the Ring of Honor Noah relationship really growing with Kenta coming in with low, racing Loki, Naomichi Marafuji coming in to face Brian Danielson, all of that big stuff. But on top of that, it's the last show of 2005, which means it's going to be our annual year-end show where, for those who have not heard before, our final battle shows always we cover we do a regular show we just do all the final battle and then usually we do like another 30 to 60 minutes where we do a handful of awards for the year we kind of sum up our thoughts of the whole year we kind of go through the observer awards talk about a couple of things and like that's going to be and I am dreading it Matt because I'm going to basically basically go through all my notes because I have forgotten so much of what's happened this year this is the longest year we've covered I don't remember half the stuff so trying to figure out what were my favorite matches who was the best wrestler is, I'm dreading. <laughs> I will say this. I think I got my matches of the year down. I, I will say that. My top three, I think I got them. Yeah. Nigel and Colt, for <laughs> sure. Yeah, that's yeah. going to be your number one over Joe versus Kobashi. <laughs> it's going to break the internet. The only way, people, that you're going to find out is if you listen to the next three of the year. So, <laughs> until then, until next time, have a good time. Have a great time.